All right, so many of you saw part one of the Broadmoor podcast that we did with Dr. Das, and we have had multiple people write in and request that we do a part two. Now, if you watch part one, then you're probably aware that these stories, the cases, the people that Dr. Das interacted with are very traumatic situations, people who have done extreme crimes, and we just need to give a disclaimer at the beginning of this video, if you don't have the stomach for that kind of content, then perhaps this isn't the one for you. So this is an educational video. It is based on real life experience and true cases. And we are gonna delve into the minds of the criminally insane. And Dr. Das, he goes in, he analyzes these people, and a determination is made by the judge as to what kind of sentence they should get. Were they compus mentis at the time these crimes were committed, or were they out of their minds for one psychiatric diagnosis or another? It's absolutely fascinating going into the minds of these people and, you know, learning what they do and how it can be prevented. But like I said, it's a, it's a very dark uh, path that we go down with Dr. Das. So full disclaimer for anyone who um, wants some more lighthearted content. We've got also in the room, we've got Jen of Boomer and Jen. Organic cotton clothing, links in the description box below the video. And we also have Matthew Steeples of the Steeples Times. Links in the description box who will be both joining us for this dialogue today. So huge thank you for being here, everybody. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And Dr. Das, then perhaps for people who are not familiar with your work and your YouTube channel, which we will have down there as well, um, do you just want to give a brief introduction about your history in Broadmoor and what else you've done? Sure, it'd be an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on. It's always good to see oh, you guys. Uh, yeah, so I'm a consultant forensic psychiatrist which means that I assess and rehabilitate mentally disordered offenders. So there's two kind of aspects of my work. There's the medical legal angle, which is when I see somebody when they're uh, in the middle of a criminal trial and uh, either they have a mental illness or they're suspected of having one. So as you said, I assess them. I see whether they were criminally culpable, what kind of symptoms they had at the time, what the diagnoses are and whether they need prison or hospital ultimately. And then the second part is actually rehabilitating them. So once they go into hospital, then I work with these people and I try and make them as safe as possible uh, over a long rehabilitation. It's often years uh, to get them safe into the community, really. And then I've fairly recently, about a year ago, started a YouTube channel, A Psych for Soul Minds, where I discuss um, a lot of high profile cases which are out in the public domain, which are easier to talk about. Um, and I also talk about my own cases, which obviously I have to anonymize. Um, and I have to be a bit careful about what I say because of patient confidentiality. But I cover a whole range of topics related to criminality, diagnoses, etc. Yeah. So we will be changing the names of the cases that Dr. Das has handled himself. And the first one we're going to call Jake. Mr. Jake Gove, yeah. What happened with Jake? So Jake was quite an interesting case. <clears throat> He's a man who had post-traumatic stress disorder. So he was a soldier. He worked in Afghanistan. He went through some horrific experiences. He saw a couple of his own um, team get killed right in front of him. They stepped on a landmine, uh, blew up, died in front of him. So he understandably was really freaked out by this. 
develop full-blown PTSD. Just for your viewers, what that is, is when people go through life-threatening trauma, they re-experience the trauma in the, in the form of flashbacks or nightmares. They have like um, problems with anxiety and they have like depression and they try and avoid those triggers wherever possible. So that was all what was happening for this man, uh, Jake Gove. And then he unfortunately became an alcoholic. So I think he was self-medicating over the years. And a good good while, about 10 years after all of this happened in Afghanistan, he uh, went into a shop, got into an argument with the shopkeeper who was refusing to serve him because he was just drunk. He was just kind of knocking bottles all over the place. Um, and he <clears throat> grabbed a bottle of vodka, smashed it over the store owner. Um, the man was a Sikh and he, he used some racial language, just kind of abused him. And my job was to see Jake after he'd been remanded in prison and do an assessment. And what was interesting about this case was that he'd already been seen by a psychiatrist for the defense. And the psychiatrist said it was PTSD uh, that, and that basically expl explained his behavior. And he tried to put forward a defense of not guilty by reason of insanity. And when I assessed Mr. Gove, I, you know, I, from a humanitarian angle, I felt really bad for him and all the experiences he went through, but I wasn't really buying what the defense were pushing because it hadn't been explored properly. So the defense psychiatrist was saying that he was having these flashbacks, but he didn't actually, from, from the assessment report that I saw, he didn't really dig down and ask him what symptoms he was feeling. So for example, did he actually feel that he was reliving the war at the time? If so, what were the triggers? What were his actual experiences at the time? None of that was explored. Then when I explored it with the defendant, I just felt that actually he was just angry. Like the reason that he he lashed out at the shopkeeper was because he wanted booze. He felt kind of humiliated because of this public argument. Um, so I didn't think that there was that there was a, an argument for him not being criminal response criminally responsible, which is what I said in my report. And had there been any other <laughs> incidents with this individual? Um, there previously? had, yeah, there had none as not as severe as this. So he'd had a couple of of minor assaults, a couple of arguments, quite public arguments mostly in the context of being agitated and being drunk. Um, but what it did is it really exposed me to the first time for what I think are cowboy experts. So I work as an expert witness. I'm very objective and honest with my opinion. Um, but I felt in this particular case that the defendant psychiatrist had just given the opinion that the defense wanted to hear and the solicitors wanted to hear to try and get this man off. Um, and that does happen in my world. You do get people that even though you're supposed to be completely honest and objective and neutral, I think you get people who kind of lean or twist the evidence towards the defense or the prosecution, depending on who's paying them, basically. So it is very common. I wouldn't say it's very common, but it's, it's I mean, it's common, even if it happens a, a few times, like once every, whatever, five, 10 cases, that's enough to kind of twist what is fair and what's justice for the victims. Yeah. It, well, it's out of control in America and it's so common there now, it's called testy lying. And if you look at big cases out there, You've got this expert for the defense, expert for the prosecution, both experts on the same thing, saying diametrically opposed conclusions. Yeah. So it's like pantomime. Yeah, it can be. And I suppose if you if you ask questions for the defendant in a certain way, you can potentially coach them, right? So you can say, instead of saying, what were your experiences at the time? You can say, were you suffering a flashback? Did it remind you of X, Y, Z? So you can. it's actually not that hard to twist the evidence, but obviously it's completely dis dishonest you got crime labs now in america prosecutor calls up and they say what result do you want yeah. crime labs yes. have been busted doing that in america 
So DNA results. What DNA results? If you, you pay, want? if you pay more, you get better. You get the result you want. Money talks. Yes. Yeah, and there's an us versus them mentality. So the prosecutors, the crime lab, the state versus the criminal. Yeah. Oh dear. So honesty gets thrown out the window for, and I, I think sometimes these people, there's not enough evidence, and they they've convinced themselves the person's guilty. So they 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 think it's justified to fudge and get experts in. But often, years later, something comes out to prove that the person's completely innocent. Like, as we've yeah. seen, these people yeah. are getting off after decades, you know, um, even on death row. It's, it's, it's staggering. I suppose yeah. what it boils down to is it's the defense's job to try and get the best outcome from their client. So their job is to try and get the client found either not guilty or to have mitigating circumstances. And it's the prosecution's job to do the opposite of that. But the expert, as I said before, should be neutral. So their job shouldn't be to sway justice. It should be just to tell the absolute truth. Yeah. But the truth is, is a grey kind of area. Well, I think we've it? seen that before in the case of Jeremy Bamber with the, the various experts involved there. It, 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 they've gradually been discredited over the years. What do you think about the Bamber case? Um, I've got mixed feelings about this. When I first researched it, so I did a video on him, it seemed to me that there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that, that he was guilty. And that he tried to set up his sister who had schizophrenia uh, and there were certain certainly aspects of the case like for example her smoking cannabis recently and her not taking a medication which would suggest that she could become symptomatic but since then i've heard a whole other side of the argument including some people that approached me at CrimeCon. i'm sure you spoke to them as well so now we, we interviewed them some time ago and yeah. you know that that, that that case is currently with the criminal um criminal cases review commission and um, there are still millions of pages of evidence that haven't been released. It's it's a very, very strange story, but I don't know whether he is innocent or guilty, but the, certainly that case was mishandled by the, by the police authorities involved, and he de definitely deserves a review of his situation. Do you have any opinions on... His uh, potential innocence will get. I was definitely swayed by watching your interview because I was present, sat over there, wasn't I? Yes. And uh, the interview with, with these. Well, there's, there's just so much that doesn't make sense. It and doesn't make sense. And the burial You can't be in two places at the same time. And, mm. and if somebody was inside that building moving around then, and he was standing outside with the police, then he cannot have been the killer. Yeah. So what the police are sat and I ain't buying. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the police conclusion was that he hadn't done it, the sister had done it, but and then they destroyed everything, so there was no evidence. And then when the women went against him, who had this vested interest of inheriting all of his property, and his girlfriend, who got 10000 from the News of the World, and don't forget con the contingent on him being found guilty. And don't forget the police officer who ended up working as a security guard for, yeah. for the, the people who eventually inherited. It's um, an absolute shambles, isn't it? Um, and the other police officer who happened to fall off a ladder before the trial and was dead. This is the thing, when there's no physical evidence, because in this case it was, there was already a conclusion the physical evidence was destroyed. When there's no physical evidence, it then just becomes completely subjective, doesn't it? Mm. And the government always has the most money to put on the best theatre show yeah. versus um, in America, you see it's mostly poor people, you know, so that, go, that get arrested for. for so going back to the case you mentioned, oh yeah, what was the outcome of the outcome for Jake? For, yeah. Uh, so he uh, off off the back of my evidence, he got a community order as opposed to a prison sentence. 
So he had to address his um, alcohol problems. He had to go to rehab. He had to like meet with a mental health professional on a regular basis, but it's like a contract. So if he broke any of those things, then he would end up in prison. But um, the, the last I heard, which is a good few years ago, he was sticking to his order. So really? he did just about dodge prison. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. And what about the victim in this? Did he recover from his injuries? Yeah, yeah. I think he needed some stitches at hospital and I'm sure the, the whole incident must have been quite traumatic for him for the future. Yeah. But there was no long-standing damage that I'm aware of. Did you see all the stitches on Decker Heggie's head? Oh, from the fight the other night? <laughs> yeah. That was a bit of a bloodbath, wasn't it? <laughs> have you seen it? I saw, I I saw the footage this morning. Did that. you no. see it? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. One of our podcast guests had a, a bare-knuckle oh. fight with another guy. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And they sledgehammered the hell out of each other. Both of the faces are just... both. They've both got black eyes and stitches and... Um, but they shook hands at the end of it and they both put on a good show. Did they have some sort of beef before then? Yeah, there was a lot of beef before then. This has squashed it now, hopefully. Good hopefully. way to squash it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so, um, so Jake's behaving himself. Victim has recovered. Well, looks like a good conclusion to that then. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I, think it's, I think it's more just. I think had the, the CPS, that's who instructed me, had they not asked for my report, I think the judge would have just taken what the first psychiatrist said at face value. And I don't think that would have been justice for the victim. Yeah. Even And possibly even as importantly, uh, Jake wouldn't have got rehabilitation. He wouldn't have got into mm. the system. It's But it's a terrible thing, the situation with military people who, the, the, what they suffer with. My friend, um, a, la a lady called Alexa Jago, she made a film called Kajaki about the... A, 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 a situation in Afghanistan where some British soldiers went into a valley and it was full of landmines and they were all blown up and I met many of these people the King of Jordan funded the film and she won a BAFTA for it and you know their mental health is, is it can be utterly awful the, the nightmares that these people suffer as a result yeah. it's it's a terrible thing and we don't do enough to help these people in no. this country. They end up in prison, a lot of them, more than half of my friends in prison or, were, or were homeless. soldiers. A lot, of, a lot of homeless yeah, people. Homeless as well, yeah, yeah. So what is the story with Cleo Smith? Mm. So Cleo Smith, <clears throat> you viewers might know, she was the four-year-old girl who was abducted quite recently. Um, it was on the 16th of October, she was taken from a campsite in Western Australia. And she was taken for about 18 days altogether and she was found thankfully unharmed. Um, so I researched this a bit because I made a, a video on my channel and <clears throat> what interests me is two aspects. First of all, this, the psychological uh, consequences of being kidnapped. So I think for her, because she was so young and because as far as we know, she wasn't mistreated, touch wood, it's not going to be too permanent or too serious. But a lot of people who do suffer from being kidnapped, especially if there's, uh, you know, some sort of physical or sexual assault, uh, it's horrible. It's like from depression to anxiety to PTSD that we were talking about. Um, they often become quite withdrawn. They stop socializing, lack energy. Uh, so, and it takes months, if not years, for people to, uh, to recover. And the other aspect that interested me was the perpetrator. So this is a man called Terence Kelly. So I don't know if you know anything about him, no. but I've got I've got a, a psychiatric theory if you want to hear it. Yes. Um, so th there's not that much information about him yet, and I'm sure there will be in the coming weeks and months during his trial. Um, but we do know that he was a bit of a loner. He was odd, I think is fair to say. So he had this like obsession with dolls. So when the police raided his house, he had all these like brats, um, which creepy are brand, dolls. yeah, creepy oh, dolls God. and Disney dolls like head to uh, floor so were to they, ceiling. Were they were they a substitute for having no friends? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was a complete loner, didn't have any friends. He was quite he was quite sort of polite and gentle. He wasn't antisocial in any way. Um he did a couple of other bizarre things. So he was on social media on Facebook having taken his dolls out for a drive. Oh, and he would take like pictures of the what? of the dolls and like said. How you big know, are these dolls? Brat's dolls, they're quite Okay. Yeah. So my theory is this, I think that he's probably got undiagnosed schizoid personality disorder. So this is a, quite a rare diagnosis. Not that many people have it. And it's even rarer in the people I assess in the offender population because it generally doesn't lead to violence. And schizoid personality disorder is is when somebody is completely disconnected from society. So they don't have friends. They don't care about um, other people's criticism or praise so that they don't really want to be part of society. They tend to have this like internalized fantasy world. So I think he's probably got this fantasy world with these dolls where they're, you know, live people and his friends. Um, they lack kind of humor or drive. So all of these things from from what I know describe Terence Kelly. And you have to wonder what his motivations were for, mm. for taking this young girl, Cleo. Um, and obviously for the majority of people that would take a child, it would be related to, you know, sexual desires or to, to a lust for violence. But as far as we're aware, she was unharmed. And, she, and he had her for 18 days. So you'd think that if he was going to do something, he would have done it within that time. So I think my theory is that she was part of his fantasy world. So he saw her like a living doll that he could kind of mm. own for uh, own indefinitely. But luckily the authorities kind of intervened. Could you just, could you just repeat what your diagnosis on him was? A schizoid what? Schizoid personality disorder, yeah. So that's different from schizophrenia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, a common misconception because they sound so similar. So schizophrenia is a tendency to become psychotic periods of psychosis is when you're outside of reality so typically hearing voices or suffering like paranoid delusions where you think people are after you or trying to kill you so that is a mental illness whereas schizoid personality disorder is a is a personality disorder so that's a character flaw that's permanent it's always there i see so permanent there character you, flaw. you would say there is no cure for him uh, th there isn't really a cure for schizoid personality disorder you, it can you can you can t uh, decrease some of the features over time with therapy but one of the uh, you can do that with any personality disorder but one of the problems with schizoid personality disorder is the sufferers by definition mm. are very um sort of withdrawn and isolated and they don't like human contact so that makes it really hard to get them to engage in therapy mm. So growing up, was he an only child? Did, did he? Uh, so he, from what I know, he was, a, his mother was a drug addict and she abandoned him at the age of two. And then he was brought up, he's Aborigine and he was brought up by another Aborigine lady who herself used to be a drug addict, but then she reformed and she started giving back to the community by, by fostering kids. So he definitely had a tough time with things growing up, yeah. absolutely. Common theme. Yeah. So, so for the kid then in this case, what kind of therapy or help would she be given after a traumatic experience like that that's a good question i suppose the problem is when a child's so young it's really hard to give them therapy because they, they don't just have the the psychological maturity to sit around and talk about their feelings and emotions so i think it would have to be through play therapy well the fir first thing you have to do is figure out whether she's permanently damaged or not and i think arguably it might not be as bad as other kidnapped victims because as far as you know, she wasn't mistreated and it was a relatively short period of time, you know, 18 days. I mean, it's, it's a long time, but it's not weeks or months or years like like some other victims. Uh, so the first thing, if I was in charge of her care, would be to just to, to observe her for, for several months to see if she's acting out, if she's becoming socially withdrawn. And then I suppose you just have to talk through what uh, with her what happened using play therapy. Mm. Yeah.
And did she try to escape or anything? Or was there like any, like, how did this end? I think it ended so that the police had a really big investigation and they took lots of uh, information from lots of different sources. I think they've been quite closed about it, actually. They haven't, they've, there's been newspaper articles that said that the police didn't want to disclose how they found her. That might change in, in the weeks leading up to the trial. Um, but she was found in, in this man, Terence Kelly's house, which was good sort of 50 miles away. Um, I think because the neighbors heard uh, crying, or not crying, they heard like the laugh of a child or just noises for, um, from a child knowing that he didn't have any kids. And it's quite a small, tight-knit community, so everyone knew each other. So I think that was one of the, one of the reasons. Who have we got next? So, <laughs> you asshole. <laughs> Sorry, timestamp. <laughs> You've done that one on purpose because the name. So, how do I pronounce his surname? Marvin in Inchian. Sorry? Marvin Ionacho? Is that what I- you mean? Ionacho, thank you. I knew why you did that. <laughs> <laughs> I would have just said the first name. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> so uh, yes next we have Marvin so he's 41 and had previous convictions for beating children and women lovely yeah so the reason that I I know a little bit about this case is again because I've I've done a video on my channel about it but I also recorded uh, a documentary with with your mate actually Donald McIntyre about this uh, a few weeks ago so it's for a series called Release to Kill and it's all about people who have been in prison before uh, been released and most of them there's some sort of failure in the system so yeah so this man as you say was 41 and he'd been in prison multiple times for being uh, abusive towards ex-partners um both sexually and physically and i'm aware that i'm saying sexually a lot am i not supposed to say that in the, in the podcast because i don't know how else to say it yeah that's fine that's okay, fine. fine okay um so what happened was that he started a new relationship with a woman called lilia breha she actually met him because she along with a friend were visiting other people in prison he was in prison at the time and they sort of struck up a friendship and then when he was released they started a relationship and this is a horrific case he ended up killing her son basically so the the little boy was a five-year-old called alex malcolm and what happened was it was in november 2016. Uh, ian was going on a little errand so he was going to pick up dvds from his friend's house and he took the little boy along with him and on the way there they stopped at a park in southeast london and the little boy lost his shoe and then Ian Acha got really angry with him, started telling him off. And witnesses have said that they they heard like this this grown man shouting at a boy, basically. Um, and he beat him to death. What? There's not really another another oh. way to put it. Yeah. Oh my god! All for a yeah. shoe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he absolutely lost his temper. Yeah. Um, so the boy suffered from head injuries, internal bleeding in his stomach, and what's quite, I mean. The whole thing shocking, but to me, one of the the more horrific kind of aspects of this was that Ayanacho was only five minutes away from a hospital where this happened, <clears throat> so he could have potentially taken the boy there and potentially saved his life, but he didn't. Instead, he took a taxi and, and took this boy home to his mother, made up some sort of lie about the boy just some becoming unresponsive, and then when his mother kept asking too many questions, he turned his anger on her and hit her. They took him to the hospital, the little boy, where he later died, and he coached her of what to say. So one of the one of the aspects for the case for me is is how how did this happen? Mm. And I think it's fair to say that probation services um had a lot to do with it uh, uh, to blame to a degree. So <clears throat> for example, he should have been in a hostel. He should have been placed in a, a hospital with supervision, but he wasn't. He was just staying at his sister's house 
and that's apparently because there just weren't enough resources so there wasn't enough places in this hostel so that's one um deficit another thing is that the the mother of the child has since said that she was not told by probation services uh, about how dangerous Ayanacho was. So she didn't know about his past. She didn't know that he was previously abusive. They, the probation services didn't ask her whether she had any children. And according to her, the probation officer was actually quite pally with Ayanacho. So she heard him on the phone and they were kind of, uh, there was banter and they were joking. So she made assumptions about him being relatively safe. And then when I went on this documentary, I was talking to some of the the um, sort of senior people in, in the probation services and they were saying how overstretched they were, how they just don't have enough workers to, to look after all these dangerous people. I suppose their argument is that the mother has to take some responsibility as well because she kind of, you know, left this, this, this grown man with her son. So it's, it's kind of an awkward conversation to have, but you've got to wonder exactly who has how much blame as well. How long had Marvin known the mum? I don't think it was long. I think it was months, a few months. Yeah. She must have. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So what was his personality traits? Uh, I think he was probably a psychopath. So, uh, so as you might know, the definition of a psychopath is it's about violence. So um, people, people who have psychopathy don't care about the difference between right and wrong. They don't care about the law. They have very little empathy. But on top of all, all of those things are actually quite charming. So that's that's the really the most dangerous thing about a psychopath is you don't know they're a psychopath because on the surface they get on with people. Um, some psychopaths are actually quite successful in the business world, so they don't commit violence, but they just manipulate people. So I think the very fact that Ayanacho has this horrific history, but manages to get well, it sounds like he was able to charm the relevant people absolutely, and he was able to choose which people he wished to charm, and then he. And then he did, did his crazy thing afterwards. Absolutely. So he's pally with the probation officers. Mm. He manages to start a relationship with this woman. So yeah, that would be my my uh, my guess is that he's a psychopath. So how do you suggest this could have been prevented? Um, I think the probation services, as I said before, I think they've got a lot to answer for. So they should have um, they should have put him in the hostel. Should have been supervised for several weeks and months to make sure that his behaviour was safe before he was, um, uh, you know, allowed out unsupervised. Number one, um, I think they should have been a bit more stringent in checking up on his his circumstances because it wouldn't have been that hard, I think, to find out that he was in a relationship with a woman, a woman with a child. They should have informed her um, about his background, and obviously, I'm not about victim shaming, but I, I, it's not, I don't think it's the mother's fault. But I do think it's a responsibility to keep her kids safe. You know, I've got I've got two boys, six and eight years old, and you know, you just have to be aware of the situation that your kids are in. Yeah, most definitely. Let me just have a look at this real quick. Um, just I'm just going to pause for a second on the video because I think we're probably going to have to strike off the paedophile ones. What about the London Mail bomber? It's a lovely story, that. Because in our appeal, our YouTube appeal, we said we weren't going to go down here, didn't we, with the paedophile stories? Well, yeah, we, that one's John Style and Wales' most prolific paedophile. Let's cross that one off. She said, 30 year old sex offender, cross that one off. <laughs> we have. I'm not laughing at sex offenders, but. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've not bought you more uh, better behaved defenders. Yeah, just or... keep going in the order that they're yeah. on it, yeah. Nicola Edgerton. Yeah. All right, so what happened with Nicola Edgerton? 
Nicola Edgerton is a fascinating case. Uh, again, I made a video on her, so that's that's why I've researched her. So she is a woman who had quite a traumatic kind of upbringing childhood, like most of my patients do. So she was allegedly abused by her father physically. Um, she had experienced violence from a number of partners over the years. She had children and they were taken away from her. Um, so on top of all of that, she had quite severe mental illnesses. So she had both schizophrenia and uh, borderline personality disorder. So what happened is that on in November 2005, when she was psychotic, she actually killed her 60-year-old mother. So she stabbed her nine times. This was in East Sussex. And then during her trial, she got a finding of diminished responsibility. So that's like a psychiatric defense that changes murder to manslaughter. And she went to a secure unit like the ones that I work in, not, not my specific one, but, but similar. And she was there for a long time. So she was released in September, 2009. <clears throat> but then she went on a killing spree a couple of years later in October, 2011. And what's really, it's, it's, it's got some echoes to the Iannaccio case in that I think services were at least partially to blame. So she knew she was deteriorating. She reached out to her brother for help and her brother um, sort of rejected her because she'd killed their mother, obviously. So he said some horrible things to her. He said, I, I think you should kill yourself. That's that's my advice. Then she reached out to the police and she uh, asked for help. She said literally on the telephone call, I'm a schizophrenic, I've killed before and I'm really worried that I'm going to do it again. Please help, help me. me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and the police, and she also complained about a couple of other things, like she said some drug dealers were in a flat. The police dismissed her, didn't take her seriously, didn't even come to see her. Um, they just kind of got her off the phone. And then she asked mental health services for help as well. And eventually she did kind of get help in that on the very morning that she went out on a killing spree, she was going to be admitted voluntarily to a hospital, so not sectioned under the Mental Health Act. And I can, on the one hand, I can kind of see the argument why you'd let her as a voluntary patient because she's wanting help. She's voluntarily coming to the hospital. She says she's going to go into the hospital. She says she's going to take medication. And she's obviously done this repeatedly. So she, she knows that there's something wrong with her. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So on the one hand, you could argue that you don't need to section somebody if they're coming in voluntarily. But as a forensic psychiatrist, I'm kind of geared up to look at risk. And you look at somebody who's done something as horrific as killed her own mother, I would have sectioned her there and then, but she didn't get sectioned. And while they were waiting to do all the paperwork and changing the the staff shift in the morning, she just left. So she walked out of the unit. So she, it, had she been sectioned, she would have been kept in a, in a locked room until the transfer was possible. But because she was voluntary, she could just literally walk out, <clears throat> took two buses, went to Bexley Heath. Um, and then I think she bought one knife from Asda, randomly stabbed a complete stranger, um, was on a charge for attempted murder for that. And then she killed, she almost decapitated this woman in her 50s, just a random stranger on the streets. Holy shit. Yeah. So there's two people? <clears throat> yeah. yeah. She they, murdered. Were they were completely unconnected. Completely unconnected, yeah, just random strangers. So the so it's attempted murder and the second one was a murder charge, yeah. And the, the thing from, from my perspective, I'm always kind of thinking about it with my expert witness hat on, is that <clears throat> she was clearly suffering from psychosis at the time. So she was having, she was hearing voices she was having these delusions about um, a hundred-eyed monster. She talked about this later during a trial. One hundred-eyed <clears throat> monster. A hundred-eyed monster that she believed existed. She felt that um, Jesus was coming back, was being um, resurrected, and was going. Everyone else in the whole world was going to heaven, but she was going to go to hell. So it's just a, a completely bizarre delusion that she had, and she believed she needed to kill people to to reverse this. And to me, this isn't. I see people that you know 
fake or exaggerate mental illness but that that doesn't strike me as uh, this doesn't strike me to be false at all because she was saying these things for weeks and she was asking for help uh, but she uh, was the diminished responsibility plea wasn't found that second time so she's actually done for murder and attempted murder and sent to prison and i think potentially it's hard for me to say for definite without assessing her in person but i think that might have been the wrong call and i think it might have been political because what she did was so public like it was a massive deal at the time it's 10 years ago now but it's such a big deal in the news that i think that the it looked better for the public for her to go to prison considering she'd done this before was, was than, her upbringing deeply religious uh no 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 but that's a common theme actually i see that in my patients when they become delusional they, they feed in even people that weren't religious before they feed into damnation and hell and god so you said that she had to kill people to reverse it so did she believe if she killed people she would go to heaven yeah i think she well she believed there was an apocalypse that was all she, all of it was connected I, it doesn't really make sense I, I don't think it would make sense to a rational person but she believed there was is a, a nuclear holocaust apocalypse plus jesus was coming down plus there was a hundred-eyed monster and she felt to reverse the apocalypse she needed to kill people yeah holy shit this yeah. is intense yeah but at the same time she was prepared to make a call for help yeah, well, she, I think she had these these beliefs were building up over a, a space right. of weeks, and she didn't want to act on them, so she really wanted help. I have a friend who, who um, he was sectioned a couple of years ago, and he eventually stole a car, a Range Rover, and drove it down the motorway, and that that was his way of saying, "Please come and get me." Right. What the wrong and way or something? He, no, he just he just stole the car. Oh, Hit the, and that, you know, off off he went down the motorway, and he said, "I had to do that because no one would listen to me." And I think that sounds, you know, this is a more extreme yeah. version of the yeah. same thing. So, what's in store for her the rest of her life? So she was sentenced to prison. Um, let me just find the actual details around. So, yeah, so she had a. A, uh, she was sentenced for a life sentence with a minimum tariff of 37 years minimum of 37 yeah. before she can get a, like a parole application yeah. in exactly yeah and how um, old is she was she when she went in um i believe she was i'm not exactly sure to be honest Sean. i think mm. she was maybe in the mid 30s something like that okay yeah so the judge even though she was diagnosed with schizophrenia the judge felt that it wasn't her schizophrenia that drove her actions it was her personality disorder because she also had borderline personality disorder from what i've seen i, I don't think that's and, correct and how long will she remain in in the jail for so absolute minimum 37 years yes. yeah at that point as sean says you have to go in front of a parole board and her and her defense team have to try and prove that she's well, safe that, i've seen this in the case of jane andrews who uh, i kind of knew of who was the lady who was the duchess of york's dresser and she never even admitted any remorse and she stabbed several people and she escaped prison and she did all sorts of things and and in the end she she, she got out after 12 years and everybody around her who well who was around her they they all fear she will do it again and it sounds that this lady is a very similar sort of situation yeah what's interesting yeah. is in part one you describe some crimes so heinous that some people will say these people should never be freed again yeah but because they were temporarily under whatever diagnosis they got out but then this person it's clear she was in the throes of some madness but now she's never going to get out because her crimes are so heinous mm. so is that because some people like the condition is such that 
it's not going to come back, but hers is reoccurring, so she's always going to be a threat to the public. Is that how the differentiation is made? <clears throat> well, so the first differentiation is whether they go to prison or hospital, and that's such a big decision on the outcome of the cases. So if she goes to hospital, uh, if she if she went to hospital, then at least theoretically she could have been treated and she could have um, been taken to a place where she was safe, and presumably that would have happened the first time around. So she was after killing her mother in two thousand and five. She was released about four years later. So that's roughly about the, the expected time frame for something like this, for, for a psychosis as serious as this. So <clears throat> if after she was released, she was observed really carefully and she continued taking a medication. So if, for people this high risk, you can put them on a depot. So rather than giving them the responsibility of taking tablets, which they can stop doing at any time, they have to come up to an appointment every two weeks or every month and be given a depot injection so you know if you're a treating team whether she's had a medication so in theory she could all of that can be done and she could have been kept safe but instead she ended up in prison <clears throat> and there are psychiatric services in prison so I, I used to work as a psychiatrist in Bronzefield uh, a few years ago but it's nowhere near as good as being in hospital so <clears throat> the amount of time you're not in a, in a hospital environment you don't get to see doctors anywhere near as often you don't get to see nurses you don't have your mental health checked on and reassessed on a regular basis like you do in hospital and you can't force medication on anybody in prison you can't use the mental health act so if she doesn't have insight and she doesn't want to take the medication then there's no way of forcing her so she could theoretically spend the entire sentence being completely floridly psychotic do you think she's classified as so dangerous she would be in a cell on her own and not allowed of inmates um if she engaged with with prison services and took the medication then i think it's not that complicated a case to take a risk down so in that situation, no, I think she'd be out in ordinary, ordinary location. But if she refused to take her medication and if these um, delusions persisted and if she voiced them, so I think she's quite unique in that she's being very open and honest saying, I've got, I've got these thoughts, somebody help me. If she did that, then uh, yeah, absolutely, she'd be too dangerous to be out in ordinary location. I'd be fascinated to know how her behaviour's been in prison since mm. this. Yeah, I, I don't know, I'm afraid. I think yeah. there's been very little kind of said about her in recent years. Mm. So the story that intrigued me the most this morning was the Peter Bryan Broadmoor Cannonball. What? Yeah. I, I was talking to Dr. Daz outside about how can they, how can he get away with this considering it's a massive padded cell? Yeah. So um, I'll give you a bit of background of the case. So this is a man who has killed three people overall. So the first time he murdered a 21-year-old shop assistant called Nisha Steth. Um, he killed her with a hammer in 1993. Then he went to Rampton, which is one of the four high secure hospitals in the UK, Broadmoor being the, probably the most notorious one. Uh, then he was there for about 10 years altogether and he was discharged in early 2004. Um, and there was a, a, some concern around the time of discharge. There was an allegation that he indecently assaulted a 16-year-old girl, although it wasn't proven and the case was dropped. So he was discharged. Um, so he went from high secure to medium secure for many years. Then he was discharged in uh, February 2004. And within hours of being discharged, he killed his own friend that he'd made, met in hospital, a man called Brian Cherry. And the police later found the victim in, in his own flat and had been dismembered by Peter Bryan. And he had eaten his brain. So he'd fried his brain in butter and they found like remnants of this man's brain, which is why he got the nickname Broadmoor Cannibal. And he said something along the along the lines of, I ate it with butter. It tasted really yummy. That's what oh, he said to Christ. The yeah. <sighs> yeah. 
What the hell diagnosis is that? Uh, so so I, I think he was actually psychotic. So I think he had schizophrenia and he had specific delusions that he believed that he would absorb power by eating other people's body parts, especially their brains. too much Hannibal Lecter then. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so I've actually seen one other, one other case in my life where somebody, he didn't actually eat anybody, but he had that delusion. He believed, he was a medium security unit, he believed that if he ate people's brains that he could have that power. So it's very rare, but obviously it's really dangerous. Yeah, so to carry on with the story, what happened then is that he was transferred to Broadmoor and then shortly afterwards, I think it was in a few weeks or the, the following month, he attacked a man called Richard Loudwell. So in the dining room, <clears throat> he attacked him, bashed his bashed his head repeatedly on the floor. Uh, and he said, he, he was obviously stopped by the nurses and authorities, but he said, if you hadn't stopped me, I would have eaten his brain. That was his, that was his plan. Yeah. Oh my God. But to answer your question, Jen, how did it happen? So th this actually happened in the dining room. And I think that they didn't fully appreciate his risk profile. So they didn't risk assess him correctly, in my opinion, <clears throat> given that he just killed his friend, like literally a month before he should be on like constant observations, should be a high level of scrutiny, at least until he seems calm and collected for, for months in a row. Like within Broadmoor, there's a couple of hundred patients. You don't have the resources of the staff members to constantly observe everybody all the time. It's just unrealistic. So you have to, you have to use your kind of risk assessment ability to know who is high risk, medium risk, low risk. But I think it was a mistake. I think he should have been observed at least for months after his first admission. Um, but yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think it's just a matter of them taking their eye off the ball a little bit and not appreciating how dangerous he really was. What was his upbringing, his, his path to this? So I, I know a little bit about his upbringing. <clears throat> I know that he came from quite an abusive family and I know that he suffered um, quite a lot of violence, I believe, from his father when he was a child. Yeah. But that's pretty much standard for, yeah, for so most often, often an uh, abused person becomes an abuser. It's, mm. it's yeah. a common... So even if people don't have a mental illness, if they're subjected to a high level of violence, especially from their parents, they kind of repeat that cycle. Mm. So they learn that violence is a way to manage conflict and they <clears throat> learn that there has to be in their mind a power dynamic with every relationship, whether it's romantic or even friend or you know family, somebody has to be dominant, somebody has to be in charge. And then you throw in uh, a mental illness like schizophrenia where you have delusions directly that lead to violence, like I need to eat somebody's brain to gain power. Had he watched Silence of the Lambs? Uh, when I was a kid, I watched that. <laughs> Not since then. I think he'd watched it. Oh, do I think he's watched yeah, it? Probably. Yeah, that's Because the third one isn't. Doesn't he eat the guy's brain at the end of the third? Was it the third one? Yeah, he cuts it into tiny little pieces. Yeah, fries yeah. it in the pan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Perhaps he was in, inspired by Hannibal. <laughs> Most definitely. Yeah. And was Hannibal Lecter? Was he a psychiatrist himself? Did I get that? I right? believe so. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to turn that way, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that hungry. Don't worry about it. So how, like in America, this guy would have been put in supermax in his own cell. He wouldn't have been able to get out or access anybody. Well, what was his charges? Uh, murder. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He, he would have been classified so dangerous. He would have been in supermax. Yeah. If they let him out, he would have been like triple cuffed and everything. He, he, this is this is this is interesting difference between the two systems that it seems like the people here, it's it's more humane in the UK, but people like this guy slip through the cracks and take advantage of that yeah um well one distinction that we really have to make is is hospital versus prison right okay. so this happened in broadmoor so he's not technically in a prison because yeah. it says here he got a manslaughter <clears throat> diminished responsibility instead of murder um yeah so that was for the first one let me just double check my information um 
Yeah, no, actually, sorry, you're right, Jen. So he was up for a murder trial, but he put forward a dement a um, a diminished responsibility. So they accepted that. Mm. So that he was charged with murder, but because he pleaded to diminished responsibility, the defense, the prosecution accepted that. So you're right, it was manslaughter. Rather than what, what age is he, and how long will he remain? <clears throat> will he remain in prison for the rest of his life? Um, so he was. So in March 2005, he got diminished responsibility and he got a whole life tariff with a minimum, uh, a whole life sentence with a minimum tariff of 15 years. So I don't know exactly how old he was, but I think roughly in his late 30s or 40s. Oh, so he'd, he's got a long way ahead of him potentially. Mm. So there could be a lot more brains. <laughs> <laughs> so next, uh, Rocky Bennett. Yeah, Rocky Bennett is another case that um, I have researched. So this is both because I made a video for him and also because I was actually taught about it when during my training as a registrar because it's quite a really high-profile case um, which reflects really poor care within a medium-secure unit. So Rocky Bennett is a man who was uh, of Jamaican origin and he had a long history of violence and offending. He had previously ass assaulted patients and nurses on various secure units. So he's a dangerous man. And what happened is that during one of his admissions, it was in uh, October 1998, he had an argument with one of the other patients. So he was a black man in a almost exclusively white secure unit, and he was the victim of some racial abuse from some of the other patients. And he had an argument with a with a white man over using the phone, and this this white man used racial language against him. They got into a bit of a scuffle. Both men hit each other, um, but Rocky was punished, even though the the, the other man started the uh, the problem and the argument. He was punished, and he was moved ward. Uh, he he was moved to another ward, and he quite reasonably felt this was completely unjust because he hadn't started the fight. And he went to another ward, and then he he punched another nurse, and then he was restrained. And he was put on the floor, but it was a really prolonged restraint. So the nurses, I think, because he was, you know, quite a dangerous big man, the nurses, the lots of nurses, sort of piled on him and kept him down on the floor in a prone position. On top of all that, it was found out later that he'd been given a much higher dose than his usual of medication to calm him down, like a sedative, uh, which might have affected his breathing. And basically, he died during this restraint. So the restraint went for over an hour, and I think they didn't even know that he was dead for some of that time. So they were still lying on top of him, like, you know, minutes after he died, several minutes afterwards, and they didn't even realise until you know, they suddenly realised he wasn't moving. Like the Floyd case. Yeah, yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, and then it gets even even darker because I think the hospital tried to cover it up to a degree. So after this had happened, they didn't phone his family that evening. They waited till the following morning. There's, there's absolutely no reason to do that. You should obviously inform next of kin immediately. And they initially said that he died from a breathing problem. They didn't tell him. The, they didn't tell the family the context. But that only lasted for a short period of time. I think probably it was, it was the decisions of the, of the people that were there on shift, as opposed to, you know, the hospital. Um, but yeah, so there was an inquest into his death, and uh, it, it uncovered institutionalized racism. Uh, within the mental health system so for example rocky had asked the managers on a few occasions in the past that he he wanted his kind of cultural um his his cultural context to be taken into account he tried to arrange like jamaican themed kind of events but he was just kind of dismissed by the hospital manager so nobody took him seriously and then this le led to an inquiry about the racial injustices in the mental health system in general and it kind of revealed that black men in particular 
were at much higher risk of being brought into the mental health system via the police or via the criminal justice system. So during court trials, as opposed to, you know, through A&E or through GPs, like most people are. And also they're much more likely to be medicated rather than given psychological therapy. I think the problem with that is it causes deep distrust, I think, in some ethnic communities. So a lot of, a lot of patients that I see are just, they have this fear of the mental health system and of psychiatrists because they don't see it as going for help. They see it as if we tell them that there's something wrong with me, then they're going to section me and they're going to medicate me and lock me One up. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Tyler Hadley. Yeah, it's quite a story, this oh, one. Oh, dear. Killed both <laughs> of his parents. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Tyler Hadley is is a, an extremely shocking case. So he is somebody who, at the age of 17, he killed both of his parents and he had a house party so this was this is all in, it's in mad. Yeah, yeah yeah so this was in a city called port st lucia which is in sorry port st lucy which is in florida so he killed both of his parents and then he threw a house party with his parents dead body in in the house and he wasn't actually that popular at school and he invited surprise <laughs> no, before before <laughs> this, yeah uh, so he invited loads of people to his party and his house kind of got trashed lots of older kids came to the party trashed his house he didn't seem to care at all and nobody found the bodies they did event well they did oh, eventually he, yeah yeah so um he didn't seem to care about his house being trashed which everyone thought was a bit odd he told everyone his parents were, were away for the weekend and then his one room was locked his parents bedroom and his best friend was at the party and he told his best friends like the party gone on all night in the early hours of the next morning he um, took his best friend to the side and told him what he'd done the best friend didn't believe him so he showed him some blood stains in the garage the best friend still didn't believe him and then he took him to his parents bedroom unlocked the door and the two dead bodies uh, were there yeah imagine being the friend yeah well the mind. friend told the police Yesterday. How had he killed them? Uh, so he had killed. So he told his friend in detail what he did, and what he did was um, he he beat to death with a hammer. But it was quite pre-planned. So he'd actually hidden their phones so that they couldn't ask for help. Then he told his friend that he stood behind his behind his mother while she was at the family computer. She um, he beat her repeatedly with a hammer, and then his father, who was asleep at the time, this is in the afternoon. His father, who was asleep, came over saw heard the commotion and then he sort of turned on his father as well but the, the reason that i i sort of researched this case and made a video about it was because i think there's a lot about tyler's background and the way he was treated by his parents that I, I, it doesn't excuse his behavior in any ways but it kind of explains it so um, i'll break it down for you so his mother had depression and he apparently started showing symptoms of depression at the age of six and i would argue that you can't really be depressed when you're that young you can certainly have moods and you know i've got kids and that they can be moody and they can be sad but i don't think you can be clinically depressed because your your kind of your personality and your presentation hasn't uh, matured yet but he was put on antidepressants by the time he was 10. Wow. so he was on uh lexapro which is estetalopram and antidepressant when he was 10. by the time he was 15 or 16 he'd already changed antidepressants another two times you know mm. three different antidepressants this is the, the problem of america you know they they get you onto these things and then you're addicted to them and he was also if i remember from what i read about him he he wasn't liked very much by other children yeah yeah so he's already an outcast already an outsider bit of a loner bit of a loner given three antidepressants and then on top of that he was given 
uh, he had a thyroid problem so i think that's actually reasonable to give him medication for that mm. but on top of that he was given an anti antihistamine for anxiety he was short for his age and as you say he was he was kind of bullied and his his mother's solution to that was for him to inject growth hormone what? so yeah to to make himself taller and he also had bulimia so so my theory is that even though his parents potentially had his best interests at heart i think they medicalized him from a young age and they inadvertently gave him a message which is you are defective you are different there's something wrong with you so i think he carried this for most of his life and he and he started becoming sort of separate from his parents started arguing with them a lot he'd had an argument with his mum shortly before because she banned him from his phone for whatever reason so yeah so i think it's like all about a massive inferiority complex feeling medicalized feeling marginalized being bullied at school having an older brother who was like good looking athletic who was really popular at school so all of these things i think in combination again don't, don't explain his actions well they, they don't excuse his actions but they certainly explain it to a degree well, sport child syndrome is that a real syndrome no i don't think so <laughs> <laughs> but we can make it one we can call it yeah make it work do you know anything more about his older brother and his um you know his relationship with him or what happened like where was he when this went um, down? I, I do know i think his older brother was at university at the time and i think his older mm. brother was completely he was away shocked. yeah he was away but his older brother was completely shocked like had had no idea had no inkling that his younger brother tyler would do anything like this yeah yeah wow and was he on his meds when he committed these crimes? Uh, so he, he, he'd actually taken three ecstasy tablets before he did it. Ecstasy? Yeah. He would have been drinking at this party yeah. as well. Yeah, I yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the combination a of everything. Cocktail, cocktail yeah. of things. But you, it, as, as, uh, as you'll know from being an ecstasy kingpin once yourself, <laughs> ecstasy doesn't cause you to be aggressive or violent. Right. 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 No. No. Lovey dovey, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Perhaps it was something that had something else in it that wasn't ecstasy that might have triggered him. Yeah, maybe. or maybe it was interaction, interacting with his other combination medications. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So many things Sounds in like his system. Party. Growth hormone triple meds and pills yeah anything that's so sad isn't it yeah so all those kids then was he like bullied or anything was he yeah i think he was he was bullied when he was younger but i also think he was kind of desperate to be popular um so there were reports of him just being sort of really silly and crazy at school and i think there's a fine line between kids laughing with you and laughing at you Yes. And I think mm. kids were probably more laughing at him, but he wanted them to laugh with him. And even the party itself, like he invited as many people as he could on Facebook. His house got trashed. It's kind of, to me, it, it reeks of desperation of wanting to be liked. Was he tried as an adult? Yeah. What yeah. did he get? Uh, he got a life sentence as well without, without, it was initially without parole. And then he got resentenced later and he does have parole. I'm not sure exactly what his tariff is, but he's up for parole at some point. Do you think future. he regrets it? Um, apparently during the trial itself he was completely emotionless and didn't show any kind of remorse um but that was a long time ago this is 10 years ago so i'm sure he's had time to reflect on it upon it now so he must do to a degree now yeah mm. so i found uh, the stockholm syndrome quite interesting yeah, yeah um i read this morning so this lady one minute patty hurst she got kidnapped didn't she yep yeah yep so once again another another uh, case that a I've very done. high profile case and mm. a lady i've actually had dinner with um, oh really yes oh, really? an interesting okay. character Cassie Hurst. yes i had dinner oh, wow. with her in in san francisco when uh, a film was made about her and she married she ended up marrying her bodyguard what year uh, was this this would have been probably 
around about 2006. The film oh, Bodyguard isn't yeah. based on it, is it? <laughs> not, not her specifically, but... Uh, you know everybody about this. <laughs> the, Hursts, yeah. the Hursts are a very interesting family because, you know, there's Hurst Castle and, you know, the, the, you look at the megalomaniacs of that family. And Where's the Hurst Castle at? That's um, just... That's just near San Francisco. Oh, okay. Wow. And uh, how did you find her then? What's she like? Um, I think that she is somebody who doesn't take responsibilities for what she actually did. Um, the story is you, you probably can tell more of the actual the rationale behind her, but mm. this was a woman who um, was from a very very wealthy family. They were billionaires. Um, they owned a media giant, they still do, um, and she was at university and she wanted to make a, a, she wanted to get attention for herself, so she got involved with this, these people, the Symbiese Liberation Army. It's a left-wing urban guerrilla group. She got involved with people like this, which were quite the antithesis of her wealthy family, and they, um, allegedly kidnapped her um whether she was kidnapped or not is debatable um and th at the beginning she made they made videos and this was they weren't there weren't televised cases of this type at this time this was the very first real real one of the, that standing and the first videos was mommy mommy daddy please help me come and get me you know you'll have to do what they want did she ask and for a ransom they asked for um they asked they asked for something like 200 million or something it was something it was a crazy sum and then they said then they demanded that um they feed all the homeless of california there were all sorts of do. crazy <laughs> demands that were you know the things that would not be able to be done um and then it became mommy daddy i hate you and i i'm changing my name to whatever tanya tanya um and and then they went these people they they got her more and more involved and then they ended up robbing banks and mm -hmm. she 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 shot at people and um people died and uh, i think one person died and eventually she is she's she's convicted and then ultimately she's pardoned by bill clinton in the end um she who, even defended her captors during their yes, criminal trial yes. yeah. those cap um the liberation army who were they they were a left-wing um pressure group they were you know sort of the typical sort of it was the hippie days of what was California. the first word of the liberation group symbiotes what does that mean um, I'm not sure. What it, I don't know what their meaning was, but they, they were, they were far left, um, and they were, you know, sort of communist. Um, I, I don't know what other views they had, but, but, you know, the the parents ultimately ignored the police, and they did try and feed all the homeless people, and there were riots, and it all it it all became completely crazy. The story, and but in the end, you know, the the the, the justice authorities didn't do much to her they they took it out on these other people and they they all got very harsh sentences and she mm. didn't can we google sim simbaese liberation army and see what that means so can i ask you matthew do you think this is like stockholm syndrome or do you think it's do you think she identified with them i think, them I the think that she she wanted to make a protest against her very wealthy family and that was That's the awesome. excuse but she is the most famous person in that that 
that syndrome. Yeah, she is the poster child. Yeah, I would yeah. say, but but what would you, what would you say of 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 whether she had that or not? Yeah, I, I, I as someone who has met her, would say this is a lady who was very spoiled and she just didn't get what she wanted. So she thought she would annoy her family by doing something yeah. completely the opposite of their way of life. Well, I I generally thought she had uh, Stockholm Syndrome, yes. but I don't have the inside story. Yes. I've never met her. So. Shall we read it? Oh, you could go ahead. Got it in Symbionese Liberation Army. The United Federated Forces of the Symbionese Liberation Army was an American left-wing organization active between 1973 to 75. That considered itself a vanguard army. What's a vanguard army? You can click with it. <laughs> In the context of the theory of Leninist day. revolutionary struggle, yes, vanguardism involves a strategy whereby the most class-conscious and politically advanced sections of the proletariat or working class, described as the revolutionary vanguard, form organisations in order to draw large sections of the working class towards revolutionary politics and serve as manifestations of proletarian political power opposed to the bourgeois. I would well, say you? that I would say that they were more. I would say that they were more like a, a cult. Do you want to read it? They were a cult who sucked in the, people like her because people like her were useful to them, um, because she was a high-profile person and she got them the media attention they wanted. The SLA. If they if they if they if they if they'd, they'd recruited just an ordinary middle class or working class student, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have got the the press attention they got. But by having her and her her antics where she you know she frankly committed some terrible crimes she mm. robbed banks she terrorized people and people died and just because of who she was she ended up with a pardon and so what was she like at dinner what did you have um <laughs> <laughs> I, I i was fascinated that she'd married her bodyguard that, mm. and he and there it was a film there was, there was a film which had been shown earlier in the evening which was about her life and um i can't remember the title of it but i I shall send you the link later. And it's definitely yes. So she seen, had she seen the film? She was watching day? the. Uh, I was watching the film, in because the person I worked for at the time funded a film festival, which is the oldest film festival in America. It's over thirty days and three hundred independent films and m many big films that have started out. That build, see, people like Eli Roth, who makes a lot of the. With things, uh, the horror films. He he. St uh, that was one of the first places he showed his film. In fact, he was at that screening, I think. Um, and um, now this this lady was, you know, she she's an arrogant person. I mm. I just thought she had she had no remorse for what she'd done, and yeah. and because of who her family were. You know, they own the Hearst Media Organization, which is everything from magazines like Town and Country and America, which is a very the, the American equivalent of Tatler magazine. And, <laughs> um, you know, they they are they're able to get what they want, and they they got her a pardon. And I don't I don't think what she did was excusable in any form. Gain money talks. Yes. Yes. So the SLA was considered a terrorist organization by the FBI and American law enforcement. And the pursuit and prosecution of its members lasted until 2003, when member Sarah Jane Olson was sentenced for second-degree murder. During its active years, the group committed bank robberies, murdered police officers and civilians, attempted bombings, among other violent crimes. Sarah Jane Olson. 
Have you heard of her? Daughter of Norwegian American parents, a member of the SLA. Steeples probably knows her. I don't. I don't know her. No, I, she, she I've managed a, to avo- managed to avoid meeting her yet. She was a bomber. No. Yes, I don't think I. Yeah, don't think I particularly would, would have a desire to meet her. No, <laughs> no. She possessed explosives with the intention to murder, and did second degree murder. She got sentenced to fourteen years. But there are lots of films about this, and they they are worth watching. It's very interesting. If people are interested in that story, it's you know it's got all the ingredients. It's got you know it's got terrorism. It's got murder. It's got bank robberies. It's got wealth. It's got everything. You know the the the, the, the and and a lot of political angles to it. With it, it you know the power of these people made made the justice go a different way to what it would have done if she'd just been an ordinary woman. They accidentally released Sarah um, for five days. <laughs> Did they? Oh, there's loads on that one as well. So, so talking what, about what is, bombers, moving on. What, hold on, what, what is um, Stockholm Syndrome? Oh, yes. So Stockholm Syndrome, glad you asked. <laughs> it's actually, um, so it's very rare, is the first thing I'd say. It happens in about 5% of all kind of kidnap, place, uh, kidnap um, scenarios. <clears throat> so it is when the the victim identifies with the captor so it's it's can either be very positive feelings sometimes romantic feelings but crucially they also buy into their ideology as well and it lasts much much longer beyond the actual kidnapping event itself so what happens is uh, they uh, the, the psychological theory behind it, and it is all theoretical because this this is this happens so rarely that it's quite hard to to kind of study it in detail but the theory is that when the victim is in a situation where they're genuinely in fear of their life for a prolonged period of time it could be days could be weeks uh, and they believe they're going to die and if the captor is deliberating about whether to kill them or not then when the captor changes their mind and allows them to live they kind of the the psychology of the victim swings the other way and they're really extra grateful so they perceive even slight gestures to be very very kind so even letting them go to the toilet or giving them food they perceive in their heads and they say this afterwards when interviewed by police as their captors being exceptionally kind towards them so they po- they form these really positive bonds and they don't want anything to break those bonds so if anything threatens that bond like the police like judges in the court system they actually act against the system to try and protect their captors so that might involve um like lying uh, on behalf of them in court cases so patty certainly uh, defended some of her captors as well so it's that, was that her defense then that she had stockholm syndrome uh, i don't think it was used as a, as a formal defense but it was certainly one of the mitigating but it, some but it was you this case was used as the, the main example of that yeah. but i sat between her and a journalist who had covered this case and he had he had totally the opposite view and said that this woman's making it all up so are they usually romantically involved in these cases uh, it, it, I, I wouldn't say it usually happens but it certainly does happen sometimes yeah yeah, yeah so that so the victim will have romantic feelings towards the captor even if the captor's not interested and even if it's months or years later so it's very strange so in yeah. the shootout sense she was involved in war um people murdered as a consequence of her bullets was that traceable or how did she get charged with what was she charged with so properly? you might, you might know i can't rem- i can't remember I, I if i'd known that you were going to talk about <laughs> her i would have actually read a bit more about it because i had, it's so long ago now but she she was she was pictured wielding the gun yeah mm. I, I can tell you what I that know. was one of the key images of this yeah. whole story her in a bank her with yeah. a gun going <laughs> so i can tell you what i do know so she was she was captured in uh, allegedly captured in february 1974 she was released in april and that same month in april 
as Matthew was saying, she was involved in this bank robbery and there are images of her sort of shouting, swearing at people, shooting shooting guns up in the air. I think her defense said that she was under duress and that she thought that she had to do these things because her life was in danger. But the next month in May 1974, there was an incident where the leader of the SLA, who's a man uh, called William Harris, I believe, he he stole some some small object from a sporting store. <clears throat> and then the manager challenged him. They got into a scuffle. Then his gun came out of his belt and sco- and flew across the uh, across the room. Then Patty Hurst was in a car. Nobody knew this at the time on the other side of the road. And she ran out, grabbed the gun, and started firing up into the air. And then there was like a little police chase immediately after this. And then a few weeks later, she was involved as a getaway driver robbing a bank. And there was a big shootout. And they went to the headquarters of the SLA and definitely a couple of people, a couple of the SLA members were killed during that shootout by the police. So that was quite a prolonged um, yeah, yeah, episode yeah. as well. And there was a big standoff, if I exactly, yeah. recall, but of what I saw. You have to, or I think, logically, she could have escaped at any point at that time. You mm. could argue that she was at the, doing the, the first bank robbery after duress, but the other incidents... It seems like she was under her own voluntary control, so she wasn't. Mm. Which is why I question whether she actually had any syndrome at all, or Mm. she was just an angry, spoilt little rich girl who thought that she would rebel against her wealthy family and make an example of them. Well, I suppose either, theoretically, either of those could explain her actions, Mm. right? So it could be cold and calculated that she wanted to rebel, or it could be Stockholm Syndrome. It could be that she actually identified with the SLA because of the experience she went through. And she had her education when she was at UCLA, or I think it was, you know, she'd obviously started to associate with people who were quite different to her previous upbringing, which had been, you know, living in this, you know, wealthy situation. And the family, um, they are a very odd family. They, they have, uh, they own an entire valley where they have um, all sorts of strange little houses that look like sort of Swiss chalets, oh, wow. and they they have body doubles of all of them. And when you go to visit, it's they have you, body doubles. Yes, they're, they're, because they're terrified of being kidnapped because of their wealth. They are a very very strange family, and you can see where she got her. Role. You can imagine what, how she came to be a very strange person because her upbringing was. Very curious. So don't spoil your kids, I think, yes. is yeah. the moral of the story. Yes. So when you go to the house, do you meet the body double family first? <laughs> yes. You don't know who no. you meet. You don't know who you meet. You don't know who you meet. You could be meeting anybody. Are you sure you had uh, dinner with the actual family? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. 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 How was she apprehended there? Was it, did you say there was a standoff? Um, I'm not sure how they actually did they arrest her at that house. I think that's probably where she was probably arrested. I'm not fully sure, to be honest. I do know there was a series of crimes and that she was wanted. Yes, there was a sta- there was a big standoff, and I think they must have been during that. But I I may be wrong. And her parents have taken her back in. They're all, They're all the family are very dysfunctional people, and there's a mm. lot of very dysfunctional families in that part of the world. There's so much money there, and you know, she's the, the a, she's an actress. We forgot to mention yes. that. So she's been in films with like Johnny Depp. And then she married, married, really? and yeah. she married films with Johnny Depp. Did you yeah. say? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I married the bodyguard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what film it is? Um, Cry Baby, I believe, is the name of the film with Johnny Depp. I think mm. I'm not 100 percent sure. Seen it, James? So, you're a film buff. Oh, I wanted to mention um, Citizen Kane was based on. Yes, that was the that was the grandfather. Yes, which ah. is considered the greatest film ever made. Is that a media film? 
well, newspapers, is it? Orson Welles yeah. is about a megalomaniac, and it's based upon it's based upon that. Is, is he running like a newspaper or something? Yes, he's a I newspaper. They're, they're newspaper tycoons. Yeah. They're, they're they're an American equivalent of the Murdochs, yeah. basically. Right, um, and they own they own all sorts. It's the, the, the Hearst Media is the name of the company, but they they own a m town and country magazine. Is one of the big titles um um they have tv they have radio they have everything really they don't own get sorry no <laughs> and i don't know if that's quite on their agenda yet <laughs> could be <laughs> right uh, yes london nail bomber being our last one today okay london nail bomber yeah is another interesting case so i did a, a series of high profile um ex-patients of broadmoor and he's one of them although as I'll come to, I don't think his time in Broadmoor was actually really that significant to the whole thing. So he's called David Copeland. And what he did is on three successive weekends in April 1999, he set off uh, nail bombs in London. Uh, you probably heard of it at the time. Mm. It's huge news back Very then. Very popular. Yeah. So he set off, um, the first one was in Brixton in a trader's market. And I believe that was found by some traders. They didn't know what it was and they moved it. Uh, to in front of an Iceland uh, supermarket and exploded. Didn't kill anybody, but it injured quite a few people. The second one was the following weekend, and that was in Brick Lane, which was a big sort of Bangladeshi community. And that's that's relevant. I'll come back to that. So first one was was sort of ethnic black communities. The second one was around Bangladeshi communities. And the third bomb, which was another week later, was in the Admiral Duncan pub, which was a gay bar in the West End. Uh, and he killed, I believe, three people, all three of, of that, during that third bombing and injured 140 over the over the three bombings so the reason I was, I was mentioning the kind of backgrounds is i think it's all to do with his deep homophobia and his uh, deep racism so this man david copeland he struggled with his own sexuality which i think is very relevant i think he he had like this internalized kind of hatred towards himself uh, which he sort of projected onto other people and he was a massive racist, so he was a member of the BNP. And he actually told police afterwards, after he was caught, that what he'd hoped is that he would spark a race war. So he wanted the immigrants to sort of have a backlash and he wanted white people to vote BNP and BNP to come into power. Was, and it, did he get some of this from Charles Manson? Did he get the idea from Charles Manson? Yeah, it sounds very Manson-esque. Yeah, I don't know. don't know, quite possibly. Um, but he... So there's, there's a few things that are wrong with his mental health. So he had sadomasochistic masochistic dreams from when he was a, a young kid. He saw his uh, GP for depression when he was about 21. So I think there's so many things that are kind of brought into the mix. I don't think his upbringing was actually that bad. There weren't any particular issues, but his inferiority complex, his uncertainty about his sexuality, he struggled to get a job, which he blamed on immigrants, which sparked off his sort of racism. As I said, he identified with, and I think was a member of the BNP, throw into all of that you get some um some depression he was also using drugs and alcohol so yeah so he did what he did and then he went to broadmoor where he was diagnosed with schizophrenia but crucially even though he went to broadmoor it was like pre-remand so he wasn't there for long-term treatment he wasn't on like a, a, a long-term hospital order he was just there for a, a remand section and he was overheard saying to one of his mates on the phone that he's going to fool the system they'll they'll, they'll find they think that i'm crazy i'm pretending to be crazy and i'll get let off with like a short term in broadmoor and i'll be released on the streets but nobody believed that so even though he got diagnosed with schizophrenia he wasn't found um to have any sort of psychiatric defense so he was thought to be criminally culpable so mm. yeah he ended up in in prison just a very hateful person yeah 
and and because of his own failings he blamed other people yeah and then absolutely. that was why he took out his anger i guess yeah mm. and he got a uh, life sentence with a minimum tariff for 50 years so that's a really significant sentence and it actually got extended so he attacked another inmate in june 2019 i believe with a with a like a shiv in prison um and so he got three years added on to his sentence so do you have to see this then where people um are fearful of the sexual orientation and they commit crimes against that group yeah like didn't nielsen have elements of this dennis nielsen yeah i believe mm. so yeah I, I do see it sometimes in my patient groups but not that often because it's usually driven by some sort of psychotic the uh, killer in earl's court the one who went to the pubs and he 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 was killed gay men because wasn't that Nielsen, no? no this was another one this was more recently this was in yes. the 1990s and it was on a program the other evening i was watching um i can't remember his name but he killed at least six people and he 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 one one of them he was so angry with them he killed the cat and played the cat in a very sexually mm. uh, graphic pose and it was it was very very much about what how was that he program on? yes it was um it was that that um, newsreader the 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 um I can't remember his name is the not Piers um I it was an ITV you watched it haven't you is it Colin Island. Colin Island was yes. the name of the killer. Yes, you're correct. Yes. Colin Island. Yes, that was so a good he, program. Didn't yes, he, kill, he killed didn't six people, and um, one of them was an American. Um, they, they were all completely random. I mean, mm. he, he, he would go and have would do whatever he did with them, and then he would strangle them, and they would be tied up so they couldn't defend themselves. And it was, it was all from the same pub. And and nobody nobody seemed to, the police didn't seem to catch on to this till far too late. It was, but he, he was exactly the same in that he as the the, the the nail bomber and that he was repressed about yeah. who he was and he yeah. he he was angry about who he was. So he took it out on people who were open about who they so were. So they're confused about their sexuality. Yeah, yeah. So there's a psychological term for it. It's a defense mechanism. It's called displacement. So it's people who exactly what we're talking about. They they often grow up in environments where their sexuality is is un, is not accepted. So they grow up in homophobic environments with you know siblings or parents that that won't accept them for being gay. So they internalize this hate, and they basically they're hating themselves. But instead of taking it out on themselves, they take it out on on, on innocent people. Mm. How was he apprehended? Um, I'm not fully sure. Actually, do you know? Um. I don't know. I, I suppose they, they was there something to do with letters that he'd written, and they were able to work out his. I don't. I don't know. I, I, I may be getting this wrong, but this letter thing as well amongst killers. What's the psychology behind that? We we saw uh, the Unabomber, yeah, mm. with his letter campaign, and then we saw he wanted to get caught, didn't he? Did he? Yeah. I don't know. So I think we'll get back to your first question. So okay. I think that. Uh, a lot of people that commit such acts of violence are massive narcissists. So the one that jumps into my head immediately was Anders Breivik. So instead of writing a letter, mm. he wrote an entire manifesto. Uh, and I think it's it's more about attention than anything else. And they well, feel that they're 
they're extra special they're above the law um, and they do things for attention so sometimes if they haven't been caught yet they write letters because they want to sort of tease the police and they want to just show off their intelligence but somebody's like somebody like brevik he knew he was going to get caught he wasn't trying to hide his actions um but he believes that he's so important that other people want to hear what he has to say so he thought he was a voice against islamification of europe uh yeah so it's just it's just it's all about narcissism. Well, going going back to Colin Island, he was he was calling the calling the media and saying, you know, this is who I am, and I'm going to do it again if you mm. don't come after me and you don't find me. That was the fascinating. He he didn't like it when he wasn't getting the media attention. Yeah. What about the what same with say the Zodiac killer? There was Zodiac say, killer as well. You know, they, they, these people they crave the attention. And when when the attention is turned off, that makes them even more annoyed. Isn't it nine times out of ten they yes. could have got away with it mm. had they not if been they doing hadn't these been teasers. so greedy for yeah. attention? Yeah, like Jen says, like you see some serial killers, they're not getting caught, and they eventually just give more and more clues to get caught. Was it Kemper? He his IQ was so high you would have never been caught, and he. He like basically gave himself up towards the end of it to stop. Well, it. Dennis Nielsen, he called he called the um the re, the um the dino re, rod dino rod people yeah. to come and clear the drains. Yeah. So what's, what's the psychology then of a prolific killer who's accelerating his kills, yeah. but at the same time is giving more clues? It's like they want to kill, but they want to stop it at the simultaneously. Yeah. So I think it, it can fall into two different categories. There there can be the ones who don't actually want to be caught. But as I was saying before, they're, they're so narcissistic that they feel that it's a game and they want to tease the police or to tease the public to get attention, not from them as an individual because they don't want themselves to be discovered, but just to get attention from what they're doing. So that's, I think that's one motivation for writing these letters. And there's another one which is rarer, which is where eventually they do want to get caught. And I think that they get so kind of obsessed and tied up in in their way of thinking and their and their lifestyle of, of going out and killing people that it kind of consumes them to a degree and they just want relief from it so even though even though this sort of sadistic pleasure builds up and they do feel an element of pleasure they become kind of addicted to it and they just want to break the cycle just like an addict eventually gets bored of taking drugs and, and eventually at some point has insight and, and wants to seek treatment it's kind of the equivalent of that even though they're evil and they're mm. and they're during the time of their actions they don't necessarily want to get caught overall over many months they eventually get tired of it and they just they just want the game to be up they just want some some sort of relief they just want it all to end have you guys any of you guys watched the serpent yes yeah. i introduced yes. you to that one didn't yes. I? yes yeah, yeah. Indeed, yes so look at what happened with him then the serpent kills all yes. these people yeah. completely gets away with it living happily ever after in france and then just goes to a country where he knows he's going to get arrested for a murder. Mm. Yeah. What's the psychology behind that? He went that? back there, didn't he? Yes. In his latter years. Well, I think that he thought that he wouldn't be caught because, remember, this was in the 70s? That right? Was it 60s? He thought he was going to go there and make a bu bunch but of publicity and then just outsmart France. the system yeah. and get released yeah, yeah, again. Yeah. Yeah. But he miscalculated. Yeah, exactly. Mm. It's a bit a different different type of case, but Azul Nadir, the polypec tycoon, he, he came to Britain to get treatment because he he assumed that all the paperwork was thirty years older and it all faded and would be irrelevant and that's how they got him. You know, the the arrogance is always what gets these people in the end. Mm. You know, yeah, in that case, the serpent story, that man was just a very arrogant man. Yeah, I I asked that reminds me. I asked a multiple homicide murder in prison. I said. Um, would the death penalty have put you off? And he says, no, it doesn't put people like us off because we always think we're going to get away with it. Yeah. Otherwise, we wouldn't be killing these people. He was doing it for the mafia. Mm. Oh. Yeah. 
Can I have a quick break? You can have a wee. I'll keep going. <laughs> right. So next one is. Oh, we're not going to go off to that one. We're going to go to Stevie McGrew. So these are the real life cases. A potential terrorist with schizophrenia. He suffered paranoid delusions about the Citizens Advice Bureau. Yep. Oh my goodness, the poor <coughs> people working in there. He collected the ingredients to make a homemade bomb, though the police raided his flat before he did this. What was this? Is someone you interacted yeah, with? Yeah. So this wow. is somebody who I assessed. Yeah. I'm trying to think when it was, maybe four or five years ago now. So it was for a fitness deplete assessment. So I only saw him as a one off assessment on a psyche. So he'd already been caught and been remanded to a psychiatric ward when I saw him. The reason this case really stands out for me was not because of what happened, but what could have happened potentially. So he's a man who had schizophrenia about three years before this arrest. He was, uh, he had these delusions of reference. So he was convinced that cars with number plates from his surname were mocking him somehow. So car with number plates from his surname were mocking yeah. him. Yeah. yeah. I've yeah. never heard that one before. Yeah. It's only unusual. <laughs> unusual though. Unusual to you, but to me it's fairly standard. I see, yeah. I see people with. Yeah, with similar kind of symptoms, yeah. Did he want to lash out at those cars? Uh, so yeah, he, he damaged one, a Porsche actually. He um, damaged one with a crowbar um, and that's when he was arrested. Did he smash it in the license plate? Uh, no, the windows actually. The windows. The license plate, yeah. Um, and yes, yeah, so he gets arrested, goes to a psychiatric ward and was, so the charges were dropped uh, because he went for was psychiatric Was it the case treatment. that he just didn't like his own surname? Um I think I think that was just a trigger point for him, actually. So when it came back to the Citizens Advice Bureau, which I'll get into, that was one of the trigger points when they got his surname wrong. So I don't think it's that he didn't like it. He just seemed to be really fixated. The name, the name was obviously something even very much he loved or hated. I think the problem with psychosis is you can't yes. really ever understand it. Or is it, it just a mixture of love and hate? <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's any rhyme yes. or reason, really. Yes. It's just completely random. So he was medicated and he became much better back then. And he was discharged, but there was very poor follow-up, I think, in my opinion. So he wasn't, he was only seen once or twice by a psychiatrist after that, which to be fair, at that point, he wasn't that dangerous, really. I mean, you know, attacking a Porsche compared to other patients that I see is actually quite low level. Um, Unless you're the owner of that Porsche and love the yeah. Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd be saying something different if it was my car. But um, So he, he stopped taking the medication because he started getting side effects from it. And he didn't take it for about a year and a half or so uh, up until the issues with the Citizens Advice Bureau. So missing a good one here, Jen. I know. Yeah, he he. Um, it's all about his surname. So he started targeting cars that had letters from his surname because he felt that they were mocking him. And then he didn't like the Citizens Advice Bureau because they misspelled. Who does? They, mis <laughs> they misspelled his surname. <laughs> He attacked wow. the car with a crowbar because it, it had letters in it that were mocking his surname. And, and it was a Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good summary. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's where we're at. Uh, so, yeah, so, so this man, Stevie, so he, all of those things happened. Then he stopped taking his medication and then he got a phone call out of the blue, which I presume is from some sort of con artist. And they'd asked him about some sort of, um, uh, some sort of seminar that he'd supposedly been to, but he hadn't. And this person was asking him for bank details, et cetera. So it was just basically a con man. But they knew some information about him. They knew his, um, his um, what's that number? National insurance number. Mm. And 
then he sort of swore at them, hung up the phone, and then he phoned the Citizens Advice Bureau to, t to tell them what happened and ask for advice. And probably unsurprisingly, they weren't really that helpful. It took him a while to get through. And he chased this up for a space of a couple of weeks and he either couldn't get through or he was kept on hold or he was told that somebody would call him back and they didn't. So he was, uh, his, I think the stress of the situation rekindled his psychosis. Plus he'd been off medication for a mm. year and a half, which didn't help. And he became increasingly paranoid, believing that the Citizens Advice Bureau were part of this conspiracy and they were acting against him. So he started sending them emails. And like you say, so... Well, you wouldn't get a response anyway from no, the yeah, organisation. Yeah. Well, I, have, I have enough trouble dealing with the DBLA. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, I can understand his frustration. <laughs> but I don't think we all need to react the way he did by the sound of it. Yeah. So I agree that that part wasn't mental illness. But uh, yeah, no. I, when I was assessing him, I did mm. think that what your experience is probably what most people experience yes. when they try and get in touch with the Citizens Advice Bureau. But anyway, so, so then the, the main trigger point was that he got sent an email by them and as you said they misspelt his surname i think they said mulgrew instead of mcgrew uh, and he took this as a personal affront he thought that they were intentionally mocking him and that there's this massive conspiracy against him and that everyone in the office was you know specifically targeting him so then he ramped up this kind of campaign of hate against the citizens advice bureau so he started sending them really threatening emails uh, like I will bum you now unless you respond to this email. Wow. You're not safe. I'll be following you home. Like in the title of the email, let alone the content. And I know this because I got sent like about 300 pages of printed out emails by the solicitor. Uh, and he, and the, the most dangerous bit is that he it seemed planned to make a homemade bomb because he collected some of the ingredients and been googling. Hadn't done it yet because the police raided his flat because of the emails he sent. But he had like... So it's in his Google search. Yeah, yeah. No, it was <laughs> in his computer. He, was, he wasn't a criminal genius, let's put it that way. Uh, he had like... Which is apparently one of the ingredients and a few other things. Uh, so he got arrested. And then when I assessed him, he was, he was psychotic. So he actually believed. And then he, what's quite interesting is he had his justifications. So he said that... Well, first of all, he said all the ingredients that he bought were legal, which is true. They were legal. Um, and there's nothing illegal about, which is also <laughs> technically true, I suppose. Really? Um, yeah, you could be a researcher. I had to Google it when I, <laughs> when I was uh, researching this case. Uh, and uh, we might want to mute that, <laughs> about what he said about the, the how to make that. Yeah, mute, mute, mute that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We um, don't want to be encouraging people down that Google. path. We don't want to be tracking the algorithm. Mm. So his, his justification was that he felt that he had to put those things in the emails just to get attention. So, I, I mean, I, I don't think he was telling the truth, but that's what he was saying. He was saying, I, I didn't mean it. I wasn't going to hurt anybody. I just thought because they were ignoring my complaint, if I wrote this, then they would listen to me. But he was psychotic. And then it, it was fairly happy story for compared to most of my patients. He got treated and I assessed him months afterwards. And he still believed he was wronged by the Citizens Advice Bureau. And he still believed that they were being rude by not answering. But crucially, his psychotic beliefs had gone. So he stopped believing that he had to get revenge. He stopped believing that he was like the target of this. Yeah, the work hate. that I, my, my writing, I have people who read things that I publish and, and they, they write to you. And if you don't respond to them, they get more and more worked up about it. And he sounds like an example of just such a person. Love turns to hate. And they, they get, they get more and more angry with you. And if you ignore them, it really provokes them. And, is I've that got what you one. Do? I've got one that he. You know, this is a particular person emails twenty five times a day, 
And the email is sent to lots of very famous people and banks and organizations and and it's totally libelous and and if you ignore the person he he then starts turning up where you what, he turns up at places i go to and it's, it's very strange how you've got a stalker <laughs> I've, I've got several stalkers yeah. um i have restraint I, I have i have i have restraint orders against several people as well um, maybe we've got time at the end yes. of this we could go into the psychology uh, of stalkers yes, yes yeah, yeah, i have a stalker myself you've got <laughs> well, a stalker too no, I don't, not, no, yet. No, not yet not yet how many subs you got it's coming. <laughs> Eight and a half thousand. Oh, it's going nicely, isn't it? Mm, well and done. If, if you want to add to oh, the I have one. She's the, she's the world expert. for some minds She's the world on expert Link on... in the description box. She's the world <laughs> expert on market towns and um, Marilyn Monroe. And uh, she's... Is one of your stalkers? Yes, she's particularly crazy. And she's um, a well-known gatecrasher of parties as well in London. So what does she do when she turns up? She just stands there? Oh, she st stands and shouts at people. She's, so what? just screams and yells that everyone's wronged her and she lives in a student hostel somewhere in central london and she 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 moans she, she goes to the citizens and vice bureau of all places she moans to them and twitter and oh this lady has been wronged by everybody wow yes i won't give her name because that'll only give her the publicity she wants go on then what is the psychology of stalkers have you have you had to counsel any or talk to any or diagnose any <laughs> um yes yeah i have so uh, i'm trying to think of the details so i saw somebody in a magistrate's court who had a learning disability and he was fairly high functioning so he's relatively independent like could travel around london by himself for example couldn't manage his own finances so sort of a mixed level of functioning in terms of his learning disability and he used to go to a cafe on a regular basis and i think he basically fell in love with one of the waitresses there i think he was always he's kind of known in his community so sort of small small um small area in south london and everyone kind of gave him a bit of a wide berth because they thought there was something a bit odd about him so sounds not too dissimilar mm. to the woman you were describing but this um woman who worked as a waitress in the cafe i think just showed him some kindness so she was nice to him um but his behavior so he lived around the corner and he used to start coming in all the time more and more regularly and he, he'd sort of buy a coffee but stay for hours and so Business-wise, they didn't really want him just sort of sitting there freaking out the other customers. Um, but he wouldn't take the social cues. It, he wouldn't understand that he wasn't really welcome. So he, he kept turning up over and over again, waiting for her after work. He, was, he didn't do anything sort of dangerous. He didn't hurt her in any way, but he just wanted to talk to her, I think. I think he probably wanted a romantic relationship, but he wasn't like he wasn't a predator, for example. He just wanted her company, uh, but he wouldn't leave her alone. So she got a restraining order against him. He claims to not understand the restraining order because of his learning disabilities but actually I, I don't think that's true i think he did when it got explained to him by the police mm. i think he did understand the concept of it uh, and just carried on this behavior so eventually it escalated and he got done with harassment and escalated into what um I, I, not it escalated into a crime but escalated in terms of the, the frequency of how often he was coming so he was going there every single day and staying there for most of the day when he got kicked out of the cafe he was kind of waiting outside for her tried to follow her home a couple of times um so yeah he got got taken up to a charge of harassment and went through the courts and have you got any stalker stories genuine around oh, by I've got quite a few um <laughs> so i had a stalker uh prior to me moving to guildford right. still in contact still get messages on social media yeah. so it's very present still can't get rid of him changes his number every time he gets a new number i'll get a call or a text um block it he'll go get another sim one of those 10 pound sims whatever top of a tenner yeah. so he must have a house full of fucking sim cards telling you that and he is just relentless he, I 
believe he does want a relationship or some of some sort or something. Well, a lot of it is loneliness in these people. Well, he is a very lonely man. And presumably and you, don't, you don't respond in any way to any of these things. I've stopped. But at one point I was getting so frustrated. Um, I did. And yeah. I was like, just leave me alone. But yeah. it does nothing. Yeah. It does absolutely nothing. Does responding feed them? Yeah, like, absolutely. Like feeding it does. Does. Absolutely absolutely it does. And sorts. I think that that even if your response is fuck off, leave me alone, even if it's crystal clear, um, well, that, makes it's still like, that makes yeah. them worse. Yeah. I find. Yeah. And he honestly, um, I've started saying to him that I'm married. I'm not, but oh god, well, there we go. Um, so I'm not married. Um, sorry. <laughs> Start that again. Time's up. You revealed to him that you were married. So I started telling him I was married, that I've got a partner, because uh, you can see on my social media, there's there's obviously uh, myself and Sean, so that looks really good. Uh, he doesn't, he still won't stop. Still yeah. won't stop. So I'm Some, getting really tired. Wouldn't that just make him jealous if she's got a partner? Yeah, so, so there is, n not all stalkers are mentally ill, but there is a subsection that certainly are, and there is like um. There's erotomania is what it's called. What's so that? it's like, it's a delusion where you believe that somebody else is in love with you. Even if they give you quite clear evidence that they're not. It usually happens from younger men, uh, younger women to older men, but it can happen in any kind of dynamic. Uh, and they, yeah, they're just absolutely, it's like a delusion like you'd have in schizophrenia. So they, d despite evidence to the contrary, they fully believe in their head that it's true. And they think that if somebody rejects them, that they're either playing a game with them or testing their love or they're saying that publicly because they're married, for uh, for example. So that's not, they think that the person they admire is lying and actually wants to be in a relationship with them. So they've got to try harder to get them. Absolutely. Because yeah, yeah. it's a test of their love. Absolutely. So if someone oh, wow. like Jen came to you with a stalker story, how, what advice would you give yeah. Jen when dealing well, with that the, person? The, I think the first thing is you, you have to have a psychiatric assessment of that person. So I'm not saying he's he's this. your person's got this delusion. He, he might he might not, but you can get it. I think it sounds very yeah. Yeah, accurate. Then Could they need we arrange a psychiatric uh, assessment of this person? You'd have to be able to find him. <laughs> <laughs> but, it might be yeah. best not to. <laughs> yeah, get in touch again. And the problem is, is that there is treatment for it, but it involves them having some level of insight. So the biggest decision is, does this person need to be sectioned or not? If they're not sectioned, then they can take medication. But again, they need insight. They, they, they have to be responsible for taking it. And most psychotropic medication have some sort of side effect. So there's many reasons why it might not work. If the risk is high, then they'll probably be sectioned to a, a secure psychiatric unit. Um, I don't know about the specifics of your case, but generally for a risk to be to be thought high enough for somebody to be sectioned, there has to be that person's like life, uh, safety or life has to be endangered. So if they're making really threatening kind of messages or- They do get know, threatening really? sometimes. Yeah, of the word has been used. Oh really, have you been to the police? Yeah. Mm, okay. That's fun. What did the police Several times. Say? They've done absolutely nothing. Really? And because uh, I'm dealing with Devon and Cornwall, being that he's down in Devon, because I originally tried to go with Surrey Police. Um, they said it's not our problem. Go to Devon and Cornwall. Devon and Cornwall Police are a pain in the ass to get hold of. So. Do they spell your name right at least? <laughs> Say your name right. Surname. <laughs> you don't yeah. want. And have you got a proof? Like you mentioned Messages, that. Yeah, I could read off a few now. With, with that Him. word in it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I sent well, it all, and I sent it all over to my mother to keep hold of, just in case my phone disappears or whatever. Yeah, and I mean that's black and white evidence. The police definitely should act on that. Absolutely nothing. Well, I gave of, them, you know, yeah. his phone number, but they checked, said, "Oh, all they said is we tried ringing his phone, and it's not." And I said, "He's got about twenty SIM cards." 
No, I can't recall. I've got a block list like that on my phone of his numbers. And do you know his address? Roughly, yeah. Okay. So, so the police. It sounds like to me the police really should do something. I've got his full name. Visit. I won't yeah. reveal it, obviously, but it's one of the ones that attacked me. That harassed me. Actually, attacked me in the Westminster Magistrates Court during a trial of another man called Viscount Saint David's, who offered a reward to kill my friend Gina Miller, and um, and um, we we had we ended up both with bodyguards and all sorts of things. So it you've got a bodyguard. I do have. You're going to run I off with it. A, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not planning on that. I'm not planning. On, he's he's got a very nice girlfriend who I don't. He's, he's quite a happy happily um partnered person but um no this man attacked me physically he kicked me with a police officer standing next to me in the courtroom did he just know oh. you had to be at that public location at that time is that uh, no, it was in the middle of a, it was in the middle of a trial of a man who was uh, this man viscount saint david's was sentenced for har harassing myself and gina miller he only got a 12-week jail sentence because he um he committed his crime via Facebook. If he'd written a letter, he would have got probably eight years. But um, this this friend of his, who is um, also in litigation with the owners of the Sherlock Holmes Museum, of all things, and um, this individual, um, he kicked me in the courtroom. And the ridiculous thing was that there were no cameras in the court. So the, quite, quite the, the security kick. cameras have been turned off. So the police did nothing about that on that, that occasion. But I do have a five-year restraint order against the man. He's not allowed within 200 meters of me. And a couple of years ago, I was at a party at a very smart house in Kensington. And um, it was a bar mitzvah of someone's child. And um, him, him and his wife walked in. And I, the, the, I said, excuse me, but you have to leave. And he made He said, we're having a great time at this party. I said, you either leave now or the police arrest you. And that that time, the police took it very seriously. So, you know, the, with these people, you, you, have to, you have to draw a line somewhere because you know we're like this man with the citizens advice bureau it, it escalates from sending angry emails to you know turning up turning up and actually doing something and one of the ones that writes to me 25 emails a day it began with how angry he was with a, a member of his family who is a very prominent person who i won't, won't name and then recently he's now making um, he's claiming he's going to be making a film uh, alleging that this person murdered various people, which is totally libelous. And this is sent to hundreds of people. We're not to, to, we're talking editors of newspapers, um, you know, very famous people, and every we're all copied in on this, and nobody responds. And you 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 have to eventually realise that these people can escalate and it sounds like that man was a prime example in your case you know this man hasn't done anything yet but you have to be yet. very cautious yeah, yeah. because they fear. can they yeah. can snap and when they snap it's you know i got kicked by the man that was you know, but he could have had a he could have a knife you never know what that and that's why i ended up having a bodyguard and my so friend gina to get bodyguard like uh, in in my case it was extreme because gina gina had taken brexit to court and and had won and as a result 
there were far-right groups like the BNP outside the court, and there was the EDL, and there was this crazy woman from the Society for the Protection of English Heritage, this old lady. She stood up and started saying, you cannot sentence this man, he's a peer of the realm. You're a nobody to the judge who was called Lady Arbuthnot herself, a very nice <laughs> lady who was, did, a, did a lot of good. And, you know, she took us aside and said, you know, I'm very sorry, I can't do more for you. Um, the, we can give a restraining order of one year against the Viscount, who had a dog called by the way. Charming, wow. in, charming <laughs> individual. Um, he blamed his problems on drink as well. I think he's somebody you could do with assessing, to be honest. <laughs> um, and he, um, the judge said, you know, I can give a, I can, I can say one year of, of restraint. And I said, well, that's not enough. You should find five years. And she was brilliant. And with these people, you've got to, You've got to eventually say you you've got to somehow stop them. Another one connected with the same lot. She's even banned from from co-op wow. for harassing customers. Um, she's banned from Waitrose Kings Road. She's banned from all police stations in central London. Where does uh, she shop? Uh, I don't, uh, who knows? But uh, she's a very strange woman, and and um, you know it's it's ridiculous. And they, they, these people, you know, eventually you have to say enough is enough. Which begs the question then, male versus females, who's doing the stalking? Because Jen and Matthew talked about Do you ma have a male stalking. No, my, no my, I've heard a male and female. I, 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 the female ones I actually find are a lot, are a lot worse because would, they, they, they tended to be more obsessive. Would Jen typically get male stalkers, but someone like Robbie Williams would get female stalkers? Yeah, Is that absolutely. How it works? I think overall, more men would. Be, there are more male stalkers than there are female stalkers. There's more male than female. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, um, well, I think men are more insecure overall. So they take they take rejection personally. They feel more entitled to relationships than women do in general. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to get Chet Sandu as my bodyguard now. <laughs> <laughs> Have you met him? Uh, I think I've seen him on possibly one of your... He's premiering as we speak, that one. Oh, he is. Oh, God, yeah. Sean, I have to ask, have you got a stalker or have you ever had yeah. a stalker? Not, um, not that I know of properly. I've had weird situations, but not persistent all day long messages. Someone's outside my house every day of the week. I've had little bits of things here and there, but not a, not a concerted campaign of stalking. Like, trolling, yes, yeah. but not like in-your-face stalking like these guys have got, like showing up at... Oh, I've, I had one. Mm. She's an American lady, um, obsessed with Brexit, very pro-Brexit, the opposite of me, and um, loves Nigel Farage, and, you know, I'm, I'm not particularly a fan of him, and she decided to take it upon herself to stalk myself and, and a Daily Mail journalist, and she would turn up at restaurants. She, she would... My friend made the mistake of saying she was going to a party because she writes about such things, and... She turned up at all these places, and this this lady just she doesn't stop, and you you can't get rid of them. They no. they they just get carry on and on, and the and the common theme I think with them is the mostly lonely. So how do you get rid of them? I mean, I don't think there's much you can do outside of the psychiatric system or the police system. So in your case, it sounds like the police are not doing their job. The problem. So with, I just keep persisting trying. The problem to with the police. Yeah. The problem I, with there the police. Crime uh, sorry, crime reference number from yes. when I lived in Devon. I reported it then, and yeah. So the, the problem with the police is they're under-resourced and they they don't take something seriously until something bad bad happens. happens. Yeah. Because if you go to the police and say, "Oh, this man's sending me messages," and they'll just say, "Well," 
blocked the number. So extreme where he contacted my ex-boyfriend at one point. Yeah, and orange paint thrown at my front door. We installed that ring doorbell. This is back when I lived in Devon. Mm. So it was face-to-face interactions. Mm. Um, But then obviously when I moved to Surrey, it was, you know, able, it was just telephone and messages Mm. and social media. So, so you think kind of, if it's a logical person, you think after time, if you get nothing back, then you just stop. Mm. Just because what's the point of putting in so much it, effort? It does go quiet for a little while, logic, but then it will just it? be like, bang, bang, bang. Like, you know, I'm, I think the longest it's gone quiet for is probably only about three months in the last two years. Comes in waves. Yeah. It, and it would be like a happy Christmas or, and then it would be like a message after message. Why, Jen, are you not speaking to me? Please speak to me, Jen. And yeah, I'll just read through it and yeah, don't reply. So best thing I can do. Yes, they go. They do go from being you know very friendly, and then when and then when you stop, it goes. What have I done to you? You're a fucking slag. No, yeah, it gets quite gets very nasty sometimes. You know, with this particular viscount, he he, you know, the abusive message he said was about you know five thousand pounds to the person who kills the, as he referred to her, or when she was actually from South America, and it was all that kind of thing. And in court, his excuse was, oh, I, I, I was drunk when I did it, and the, the judge said, oh, you sent that message at, at 5.49 a.m. You, you can't have been drunk at that hour unless you're a serious alcoholic, and in mm. their case, you need help for that. <laughs> and then it was, I found God. Every <laughs> excuse possible. And, you know, it, it was uh, he'd been let down by the system and, you know, he'd, he'd been bankrupted and it wasn't his fault. And uh, the, they, they always find some justification for this. But you know, these, I, th- I think generally they're very lonely people who have a, I, I don't know what you, you diagnose it as, but they have the ability to snap. And that's when it gets dangerous. Because yeah. I think the victims do feel sometimes that it is their fault. I think that's quite often the case. Are Matthew and Jen giving off vibes? Am I Stalk giving me. off? <laughs> I do get a lot of people approach me on the train who are very odd. Every time I'm on the train, <laughs> stop it. Um, well, so no, I, well, there's always someone who will come sit next to me, usually a male, and he'll just start chatting. And there was a guy, he, he was only about 21 the other week when I went back to see my parents, just came and sat by me, started chatting and asking if I was single. And I, don't, I was like, no. Was no. that when there was other seats available? Like? Yes. And I, I tracked weirdos. Maybe you should try and look less shall approachable. I? Yes, less like Maybe a, a face, siren. Maybe a facial more, tattoo. That should that I wear that helps. mask like that? Your, your, t- what is it? Your fave demon, demon mask. Wear a demon mask. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Well, that might attract <laughs> more of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they probably love that. <laughs> so yeah, I'll have a fig. Shave my hair off. <laughs> right. Next one. Oh, so I, I didn't know where we were from my toilet break. So we were. We just finished the man with the Citizens Advice Bureau and the misspelling of his name. Oh, fantastic. So next, Reggie Wallace. For some reason, I've heard of that name. Uh, that's a fake name. So. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> um, Is so, there someone out there called Reggie Wallace? I'm sure there's probably quite a few people yeah. called Reggie Wallace. I'm probably about to... He might be worried about his surname. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, the, the reason that this man sticks out to me is because he's one of the most difficult and challenging patients that I've treated in in hospital over the long term. 
uh, and also there's quite this there's some interesting aspects to his background of why he acted the way he did so he's a man who had a litany of offenses <clears throat> he was very um lots of assaults he was a drug dealer in from south london and he had at one point captured and tortured one of his uh, ops i believe is the, is the phrase um so like a rival drug dealer he uh, kept him awake for like four days burnt him with cigarettes stabbed him urinated into his wounds so just really horrible oh. horrible offenses uh, but this man didn't go to police presumably because he's a, a massive drug dealer himself um there was sexual assaults against his own stepsister what? so he had he sort of he would deal crack but he would he would exploit women to to build up these these drug debts and use them sexually for him and his uh his posse inside of his flat and he went to prison for that a couple of years before i met him <clears throat> and when he was in prison he was already quite paranoid he was he was very paranoid about, about other rival gang members being in the prison but on top of that he developed a psychosis so i think he is separate due to the stress of his situation so he started having beliefs that were out of touch of reality so for example he believed that other people in the prison were committing voodoo on him and were trying to shrink his genitals so that's what he actually believed and he believed that the uh, the prison warden was on it as well was in on it as well and then he was given antipsychotics which he took in prison and he still remained a little bit paranoid but his psychosis resolved so he wasn't having those bizarre beliefs then he went back into community stopped taking his medication didn't turn up to any of his appointments and um, there was no sort of legal there's no legal restriction he wasn't like on a community order but he, he had appointments that he didn't turn up to then when i saw him his index offense at that point was that he attacked a random stranger on a bus because he believed that this man he was a mistaken identity he thought it was another drug dealer from his neighborhood so he attacked him quite badly um just just with his fist but, but beat him up really badly then got arrested then got sent to prison and then uh, no sorry didn't get sent to prison then he got transferred to our psychiatric unit so he was one of my patients for um a, a, about a year or so and he was just really really hard work because he was just like quite he was really intimidating he's about six foot four had like a facial tattoo <clears throat> really big man and he was just very very anti-authoritarian all the time so he would not stick by any of the ward rules um like for example you're not allowed certain possessions like razor blades you have to use them and give them back for obvious reasons he would always argue with the nurses have his music blaring out really loudly all the time would argue with the patients it's just a nightmare to be around um and again his psychosis returned when he was in prison so he thought that other patients had been planted there to spy on him from rival gangs and i was a registrar at the time so i was a, like a middle grade psychiatrist but my boss the consultant he thought that his the consultant was also a drug dealer in disguise which is doesn't make sense because he's like a sort of mid 60 a mid 60s white man <laughs> uh, not a drug dealer from south london but, but in his psychosis he oh, you never that, know yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true, that's true. shouldn't judge a book by its cover definitely uh, so yeah so he was treated with antipsychotics and again the psychosis resolved but the reason that this case kind of struck me was that <clears throat> I, I was a bit judgmental i still am because he was really difficult to be around it was just very aggressive would constantly argue and shout and swear but we the psychologist delved into his background and he just had such a horrific kind of upbringing so his own father was really abusive and his own father broke his arm when he was a six-month-old baby so he wouldn't stop crying and he wouldn't uh, and he wouldn't shut up so he just sort of threw him around the room basically and, <sighs> and his uh, his arm snapped so I had to remind myself that that happened because it's quite hard to equate the man in front of you who's like really aggressive and belligerent all the time to somebody that was once a victim himself how do you detach um 
I'm not really sure. I think well, from the from the cases that I do one-off assessments for, for medical legal work for the courts, it's not that hard because you only have to be in a room with them for about an hour or two hours. And then you have to go off and write the report, but you, you, they're not a big part of your lives. And you have to separate what they did from your psychiatric assessment. So my job is not to decide whether they're guilty or not and what punishment they have. That's purely up to the judge. My job is to see whether they've got psychiatric illness, what the diagnoses are, whether they're criminally responsible. So you've got to own your mind to attach the two things. Mm. Yeah. Can smoking crack create a psychiatric illness? Yeah, absolutely. So drug-induced psychosis is something that I see relatively frequently. In fact, last time I was here, I was telling you about that um, Wu-Tang Clan member that cut off his own penis. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wu-Tang Clan? <laughs> yeah. You know, the rap group. The yeah, of course. Clan. Oh, Gravel Pit. Yeah, yeah. I also met them. In, I also I met them in knew. San Francisco. Oh, yeah. Yes, he's I have. He? He's met the Wu Tang Clan. I have. I've had. Oh, where we go? They taught. Um, they taught. Was this on the same tour? Of <laughs> yes, Hurst? this was the Does same time. Hurst? Yes, and, this, and they they uh, they yeah. um, taught my uh, elderly um, relative how to to rap. Whoa. And, they ca and they came to London and she said, "Where are you going to stay?" And they said, "Oh, we stay at the the Carlton Tower Hotel because it's." Um, uh, it's got bulletproof windows because it was subject to a shootout by because um, it was an Arab-owned hotel and the the the, the, Israeli, it was, the Israeli terrorists tried to shoot out the windows and nobody thankfully died so they they had bulletproof windows and they, they said well she said well I live across the road so we we occasionally meet when they t turn up in London we have we have dinner there well and they're they're an interesting bunch. <laughs> Do you want to recap and tell Jen what that guy, the Wu Tang yeah, guy, did? Yeah, yeah. I should say he's an affiliate member, so he's not one of the original Wu Tang lineup. Um, okay. We get sued by the Wu Tang <laughs> clan, but he was called Christbearer. That's his rap name. So he suffered from a drug induced psychosis. I think it was roughly about ten years ago. Uh, he, he was having a hard time in his life anyway. Like he um, had a custody battle with his kids against his ex partner, and he had just been smoking. I think it was crystal meth rather than crack. I think it might have been crack as well for like three or four days straight. He was at a party, um, got a bit drunk, didn't really know anybody at the party. He had this fixed delusion that the the problem, the cause of all his problems was his penis uh, because he'd fathered these children and, and wasn't a good enough father to see them. So he, he convinced himself that this was the problem. So yeah, so he got a kitchen knife and cut his own penis off and then jumped off a second story, uh, second story of a building. What, and killed yeah. himself? No, he didn't kill himself, no. No, just badly no. injured? Just badly injured, yeah. Did he get a reconstruction? Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. And he said in interviews since then that his junk is working fine. Because okay. I was playing with a castration device on Friday, wasn't I? Yeah. Oh, I saw your video, yes. <laughs> would, would you say, what, what percentage of the people you see have been abused themselves? Good question. So it's definitely a large majority have either been physically, sexually abused or have some sort of serious social problem like hopelessness or growing up in po poverty. I'd say definitely over 80%, probably closer yeah. to So 90%. abuse produces abuse. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So if you're on a drug-induced psychosis and you commit a crime, that's no defense, is it? Because you chose to take those drugs and you put yourself in that state yeah. of mind. So it's it's a, it's quite a sticky gray area. So as you say, if it's voluntary intoxication, then that's not a psychiatric defense because you ingested it voluntarily. And also if that was a defense, then anybody who did anything when they were, you know, slightly intoxicated or drunk would try and use it as a defense. 
but there is an exception and the exception is if if that has actually flipped you into a psychosis and if you're acting directly on that psychosis then it can be the the insanity defense still can be used so if you're just intoxicated then that's not a defense if you're just a bit high but you have to be delusional and you have to be at, reacting directly to that delusion that makes sense so yeah. you could be if you're just hearing voices or just have paranoid uh, beliefs and then you attack somebody that wouldn't be a defense but if you believed that they were going to kill you because you were delusional then that could potentially be a defense it's not automatic you need uh, evidence from somebody like myself and the the crown, crown prosecution service gets to instruct their own psychiatric expert who can argue against it uh, but it can certainly be put forward potentially so you started what you said there you said if you voluntarily take drugs what if you're spiked and you commit a crime yeah so if you're spiked and you commit a crime then that doesn't count as voluntary intoxication so that can be a psychiatric defense but the onus is on you to prove it yeah. i think that's well, the rough, difficult rather like what we were talking about last week with the the rfk case where the 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 assassin or who may or may not have been the assassin um went and had a, some coffee because he'd been intoxicated and he doesn't remember anything after what happened happened after Surround, after Surround. having and you don't believe it yeah i do believe he was set up well he couldn't have he couldn't have actually fired the fatal shot because the the bullet came from the rear and he was in front there was two shooters mm. the yes. ballistics showed there was two Gosh, shooters i missed it last yes. week <laughs> So, um, so, but he he has always maintained, and he's never changed his story that he he doesn't have any memory beyond this this standing at this coffee urn with a woman in a polka dot dress who has never been identified. Identified, though there have been suggestions, and the gentleman didn't make a, a case for a certain person, but they've never formally found anything, and and obviously something was put into his coffee. I think the problem is it's quite hard to prove, isn't yes. it? So you need to have um, some sort of blood test or urinalysis to show first Which of all. See, back then they didn't do you. things like that, so. and that's not enough. I don't think. Yes. I think you'd also need something like CCTV footage to show that mm. you you didn't know that you'd ingested. Well, it. There, were, there were no cameras present, uh, but there was a, a, a tape recording because uh, the man had left his tape recorder on by mistake, and that that identifies thirteen bullets having been fired yet the gun was only capable of shooting eight so there were the, 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 there were all sorts of discrepancies there but but this man has continually maintained he has no memory mm -hmm. so i don't know how are you, are you how would you assess his well the thing is is not having a memory of an offense is never uh, a defense for it because it's so easy to fake and also it doesn't really affect your criminal responsibility so i if I was to assess him, if he could remember it or not, would be irrelevant. So mm. sometimes I do fitness to plead assessments, and the person says they don't they don't remember what happened. But mm. if they can still understand the charges against them, if they can still understand the evidence, then they still have to go through mm. a trial process. But he he did he did actually shoot other people, so he committed a crime just for sure. But it's whether he committed the murder is another matter. I think it'd be very hard to argue a psychiatric mm. defence. It's not mm. impossible and it depends on the evidence. Mm. But you no, know, he admits to holding the gun and shooting it. You know, and he had it in his hand and it, there was a smoking gun, you know, it's there. But that doesn't mean he was actually the, the killer, but he but he the interesting thing I found was that he literally claims to have no memory of of actually having carried this out and how he got to that room.
Mm. And he didn't work there, so how was he in this pantry? You know, it's, it's very odd that he ends up in this room when he wasn't a political person. He was a, an ex-jockey. You know, he was not. He wasn't like he was. It wasn't like Patty Hearst who wanted to make a statement. This man just sort of ended up there. Mm. So, what would happen, Doctor Das, if all of those cakes were laced with LSD that we didn't know about, <laughs> and Can we all <laughs> we all participated in a cake? And then we all go to the pub for our meal break and we all start tripping. And then one of the pub customers, well, one of us well, see the pub customer as like someone who's coming well, to I think hurt we, us. I think this particular pub um, <laughs> is quite likely to be an episode after what I saw last time what? with pensioners arguing over the price of a, a pensioner special meal. <laughs> one of us hallucinates that a, cust a pub customer is trying to hurt the group and stands up and, and knifes this threat to death. What what would happen to the the perpetrator there? Well, first of all, I only put quite a small dose in these. <laughs> um, so I think it would be the the it would be up to the defence to prove that all of that had happened, because anybody could take LSD or not even take LSD. They could say that they've taken it uh, and go out and stab somebody. So the onus is it's not necessarily about what happened; it's about what can be proved. Yeah. So the police immediately would get your, do a P test yeah, and a yeah, P yeah. analysis. Yeah, if that's what you're if that's what you're saying that you, that you're that you're hallucinating, you're tripping, then they would do a urine drug screen. They'd probably do blood tests as well, which are more accurate, but take longer to get back. So, so assume it tests positive then for LSD. Yeah, if it tastes positive, then then the defence would have to prove that you were somehow mm. laced. So you would have to have witnesses or CCTV footage to show that I brought in these cakes. Joe uh, James, you remember that? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so yeah, it's all about all on the defence, really. And if yeah. it was the, the proved that someone had spiked them, yeah, then what would happen? So then, if you can prove that it was it was spiked and it wasn't voluntary intoxication, then you could potentially have uh, an expert forensic psychiatrist like myself come in and assess the case. Then the next question is whether it would it would. So if it's a murder, there's two potential psychiatric defences. There's diminished responsibility, which would change it to manslaughter. Or there's the insanity plea, which is not just murder, it's for any offence, which would completely resolve you of any criminal responsibility. And the so, threshold... So, so being high on LSD has made you insane? Yeah. If So you'd have to prove that... First of all, you'd have to prove that it, that um, you, you took the LSD in your spite, and then you'd have to prove that either you didn't know your actions or you didn't know the actions were wrong. So if you said that I was really high and I didn't like the look of somebody and I went and stabbed them, then even if you were high you still knew what you were doing and you knew it was wrong because you can't stab somebody just because you don't like the look of them. However, if you said I was, I was in a pub and I'd been spiked and I was genuinely in fear of my life, this person, I was convinced that this person I was going to I saw a dragon me. flying at me. Yeah. And I thought, thought it was about to eat me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I went like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. To, to get rid of the dragon. It's like your scared face. <laughs> <laughs> might have been, that might have been the barmaid. <laughs> the local dragon. <laughs> Which brings us back to the case that we're talking about right at the beginning of Nicola Edgington, who I believe, despite the fact that she got a prison sentence for her killing spree, I believe that her symptoms were directly, I think she did what she did because she thought this apocalypse was coming. So she felt she had to kill somebody. So I think she should have had the insanity plea. Well, going back to pub killings, and my friend actually owns the pub where it, it occurred, and um, and the street I live was where she was actually living at the time. Um, Ruth Ellis, who you know committed a crime of passion, and you know what what would you say about her case? You know the the last woman to be hanged in Britain. Um, you know she shot she shot her lover because he he didn't want her anymore, and you know the 
what what defense would you say she should have should have been able to use because um, a lot of people believe her case was she was treated very badly i don't uh so she didn't have are you saying she didn't have a psychiatric illness but she was she was treated really she was well, I think that there's the possibility she was she was a bit simple, I, I believe, of mind, and and that that could be that could have been used as an as a line of defence. But you know, she she committed a crime of passion. Yeah, well, if it's a crime of passion, there's there's, yeah. there's certainly no psychiatric defence there. If you can argue that she had a severe learning well, disability, they 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 but they sentenced her on the basis that she was a you know evil murderer who was she had great intent but i think that that case is one that definitely should be re-examined it's, it's too late to do anything for her and you know seeking a pardon for her doesn't really help when you're dead but uh no i thought that would be something that you you might like to look at yeah give me some more details and mm -hmm. take a look into it so we have a story here uh, of self-harming Miss Pamela Ford. Yeah. So uh, again, that's not her real name. Um, I picked this case because it really stands out because it's probably one of the most prolific self-harmers that I've ever had to deal with. So she was a woman who I saw in prison probably about four years ago and she had um, borderline personality disorder, which is also known as emotionally unstable personality disorder and a learning disability. And I think both of those things affected her self-harming. She, like many of my patients, had quite a tragic upbringing. She was um, she was abandoned by a mother when she was a toddler, grew up in foster care, had really turbulent relationships with her foster family. And I think she just had this sense of rejection ever since she was a child. So she was rejected by her own family, then later thrown out by a foster family as soon as she hit 16, which I believe is when funding stops. Uh, she was treated really badly by men and kind of used for for sexual relationships and then, and then um, discarded and even by psychiatric services I have to say so because a lot of her issues were about social issues and arguments and losing a temper as opposed to becoming like severely mental, mentally ill she would go to A&E and the, not much was done for her somebody would sit down and talk to her and then they would not admit it to hospital so I think she had this deep rooted sense of rejection and I think she used to self-harm. So she used to cut herself, cut herself quite regularly. And I think she did it as a, a way of control because she was so used to other people controlling her that it was one of the only situations where she was in charge. And she had a learning disability, which means she had like a pathologically low IQ. So I think in her world, she felt inferior. inferior. So inferiority complex is another running theme through a lot of my patients. Um, <clears throat> and because she couldn't quite connect with people and she wasn't clever enough to really fit into society is, is another way where she controlled the narrative of what was happening to her so she was really challenging to deal with in prison she would constantly cut herself she was moved from the general location to the healthcare unit where there's a lot more observation and you're you're kept in a in a cell for, for longer periods of time and obviously sharp objects were removed but she was actually quite creative in the way that she would self-harm so she would like take pens or the inside of pens and she would like cut her stitches <laughs> and she would insert like um, what, inside what, was, pens. what did she actually do to end up in prison <clears throat> to, in, to prison in the first place so she carried a stanley knife around with her that she would use to self-harm and she would get into arguments all the time uh, and she threatened a couple of people with the stanley knife but i don't think she's ever actually physically hurt anybody um but she just has this kind of aura of being threatening um and so borderline personality disorder for your viewers that don't know is associated with like an unstable mood explosive relationships 
never really being fully happy um not really un- having a, a sense of self-identity so not really knowing who you are plus self-harm plus drug and alcohol use so she had all of these issues going on so while she was in prison she would she'd get bullied by the prisoners they make fun of her for being a bit backward frankly compared to to most people uh, and she would have arguments with her mother so she speaks to her mother on the phone and her mother would push her her trigger points and and after one of these conversations she would go and self-harm she would constantly provoke members of staff like she would just call them names and i think she would do this on purpose so she would use that as a trigger so that she had a reason to self-harm uh, so as i said she would she would insert bits of pens into her skin oh. At one point, she would unpick stitches, so she would have her, her wounds stitched up, and she would like intentionally unpick them. And at one point, she put like toilet water, dirty toilet water, onto um, her wounds intentionally, so they would become infected. So she was really hard, really resource heavy. And I have to give credit to the psychologists on the team. So they they came up with a plan. Um, I was really stretched in my time because I had so many other prisoners to deal with, and I didn't have the the t- the patience or the resources to sit down with her, but. Our team psychologist did we basically made this really detailed management plan of how to assess her behavior so what we would do is we instead of instead of seeing her like once or twice a week which is what the psychologist usually did she'd see her every single day sometimes even twice a day to give her pamela an opportunity to to vent out all her frustrations and kind of act a little bit as a punching bag so she would let her scream and shout and get this anger out so that's one thing that she did another thing is that she would um she, her, her phone calls to her mother would be supervised and they would be limited so before she could have like half hour calls they were limited to like five or six minutes every few days so it would stop her getting agitated uh, and the other thing that they would do is she used to get bullied when she went to her arts and craft sessions within the prison so from from the new plan was that she had to be supervised and escorted by one of the nurses from the healthcare unit so she wouldn't be bullied so we had all these little plans in place and actually worked i have to say to my surprise uh, her self-harm in- increased from almost daily to about once every kind of month um the worst self-harm she ever did while she was in there i didn't actually physically see it myself because i was in a meeting at the time but i saw the aftermath um she just somehow managed to get a get hold of a plastic knife and instead of returning it with a meal she secreted it and a few hours later, she just kind of opened up these stitches and she was like, um, the blood was splurting all over the floor. Uh, she got physically restrained and taken to hospital and I got called. But by the time I got there, because I was on the other side of the prison, she was already in an ambulance. But I just remember that we went to a cell and it was just like the entire floor was oh. like, there was like a, a um, blood about that thick. Did she have to have transfusions floor. then? Uh, she did, yeah, yeah. She had to have transfusions and plastic surgery as well. I've seen someone do that to their arm. <laughs> Like this guy, this Scottish bloke, I knew he was going out with one of my friends, sorry. And he got a massive knife and went straight down there. And I remember the blood just hitting the ceiling. Yeah, in front of my friend, me and my friend. Yeah, it was awful. He had to have stitches, but. Was he intoxicated? He was always, yeah. He's very highly into drugs, drinking. So yeah, he was under the influence when he did it. But they'd had another row and, you know, it was a very turbulent relationship. And yeah, another after another row just went. Jeez, it was horrendous. Had she managed to have a normal life before all of this began, or was she no. always always like this? As she, I think she was always like this since uh, adolescence. Yeah, and I just I, I remember it because uh, even though I didn't see it happen, thank God. Um, mm. Afterwards, all the prison staff were in these like massive hazmat suits. So when I came into the to the healthcare unit. It looked like I'd stepped into like a Beastie Boys video because there's all these people with like literally with mops 
like mopping up this this pool of blood on the floor. Oh. Yeah. One of my memories from prison. <laughs> and what what became of her ultimately? Um, so I I think we did we did given the situation given her presentation i think she was really challenging so i think we did a very good job and credit goes to the psychologist more than me uh, of containing her self-harm but the problem is is that i don't know what happened to her after she got released she'd already burnt so many bridges because she'd basically annoyed so many different hostels she'd been kicked out of family members that she started arguments with the police wanted nothing to do with her because she was just so much drama uh, even she was banned from a couple of the a e's because she would kick up so much of a fuss so i've i have to admit i i have always been worried that at one time that at some point in the future she will take it too far and she'll self-harm in intention to manipulate other people but she'll actually kill herself so i'm always sort of mm. i scour the newspaper sometimes looking for her yeah. for a name because i think that i'm almost certain that will happen are some people just on the path where they're going to do that themselves and they're going to die and there's just nothing can stop it i think so yeah i wouldn't say nothing can stop it but i think they need to want to change they need to have the insight and they need to go through intensive therapy you could argue that some medication might help a little bit some antidepressants might take the edge off but i don't think it's going to reverse the, fir the first part of wanting to get better is admitting you've got a problem isn't yeah, it really absolutely and that goes with all psychiatric illnesses you know, goes have, with addiction everything. i have a problem i have a, I, I knew somebody who hasn't left their bedroom in four years and and they they don't seem to think they have any problem and it's and everybody around them has tried to help them, but they, you know, they've they've lost utterly everything, and but they still won't admit they've got a problem. And you know where that will eventually end. And mm. and I, I I wake up in the morning and think what will happen. And it's 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 very bad for the people around these people. Yeah. And that's why I ask if you know what became of this lady because it sounds like she's ultimately on the path to destruction. Yeah. I, there's different categories of people that are different types of risk when it comes to self harm. So. Generally speaking, women will self-harm more frequently, but less severely, whereas men don't do it as often. But when they do do it, it's usually a lot more dramatic. Mm. So, for example, when men try to commit suicide, they more often use more lethal methods like hanging themselves, whereas women are more likely to take overdoses. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think some people will form or did, into the category of Pamela. Did she have a drug problem? Uh, she used drugs in the community, but I don't think yeah. it was her, mate, her, no. her biggest problem by any means, no. So if someone's got a death wish then, it's, it's not going to be easy to snap them out of it. No. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of work. And the problem is, from a psychiatric point of view, is it's it's possible to contain that person, put them in hospital and observe them, but at some point you have to release them. Either, either stay in hospital for the rest of their lives, which is impractical because it blocks up a bed and, and you're not actually actively treating them, or at some point you have to take the risk and discharge them. And they might seem okay at the point of discharge, and maybe they are, but life gets has a way of, of coming back to you doesn't it so all their problems whether it's alcohol or drugs relationships eventually are going to come back to them so there are certainly people out in the community who are very high risk who uh, most psychiatrists have a fear that one of their patients is going to kill themselves what proportion of people with a death wish want to go solo versus want to take people out with them the, the proportion that wanted that go on like a murder suicide is very small it's like a couple of couple of percent maybe of all people that are suicidal so it is very rare but obviously it garners so much more attention because it usually goes out in a, in a massive sort of killing spree yeah so I, the next one is a huge story a man who sorry a man who tore out his own eyeballs what? in prison yeah so this is uh this is probably one of the most shocking cases um 
I talk about it in my book. So his name's, his, I, I call him Rex Peterson in my book. It's not his real name. But yeah, that's one of the most intense cases I've seen. So <clears throat> this wasn't a criminal case, which is most of the medical legal expert work that I do. It's actually a civil case. So he was years after, about two years after he removed his eyeballs, he was suing the prison for not keeping, keeping him safe. So what had happened was this man was in his early 50s, I believe, maybe late 40s, early 50s. And his, he'd never committed an offence before he went to prison. He wasn't a criminogenic, antisocial person at all, but he was in a, a, a quite a volatile relationship and he set a fire in the garage of his partner. She wasn't at, she wasn't at home, it was when she was out, but he wanted to sort of damage her property um, and then got caught by the police and then went to prison. And then whilst he was in prison, some of the inmates started spreading lies about him. They started saying he was a which wasn't true. And they, I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to use that word. <laughs> they started saying that he was a child predator. sex offender. Yeah, he was a child predator, which wasn't true. And they also said that he had killed his girlfriend in the fire, which also wasn't true. And I think they were just bored and just didn't like the look of this man and just wanted to make his life difficult. But this rumor started spreading across the whole prison. So the other prisoners um, started targeting him, as you know, Sex, child sex offenders, yeah. yeah, yeah. um, KOS, yeah. So they're they're targeted. So he started becoming understandably really paranoid. He was getting threats from other prisoners. I think he got punched a couple of times by random prisoners he didn't know. Um, he got moved to the vulnerable prisoners' wing, but the threats continued. And then he became psychotic for the first time in his life because of all the stress, which is really unusual. It's very unusual for somebody to become psychotic in their late 40s or early 50s usually it starts in your sort of late 20s early 30s oh, uh, i'm in my early 30s now say that again i'm in my early 30s now okay so could could happen to you you never know um could happen <laughs> <laughs> i think she's there <laughs> just being honest uh so <laughs> oh yeah that you've got that device uh, now for the, for the stalkers lsd cakes <laughs> we'll put that clip in <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. That's right. um, so this guy Rex, he he developed this belief that other people, that other prisoners wanted to eat his eyeballs because he thought that they thought that that they would gain superpowers if they ate his eyeballs and they would break out of prison. So they'd smash through these walls. We had this like really complicated, detailed, delusional belief in his head of what's going to happen. Imagine if he ended up in the same cell as the brain eater. Mm. Yeah, could have. Bit of um, nice bit collaboration, synergy. Could have ended up with Superman. <laughs> well, not quite Superman. So basically, he uh, removed his own eyeballs because he thought it's rather oh, it's better it's better oh, that yeah. I do it myself rather oh. than the prisoners do it. So he was locked in the segregation unit at the time. So I'll just quickly tell you the bit before. So he had self harmed minimally in the week before. So he banged his head against the wall. He'd told a couple of nurses that he felt that people were coming into his room in the middle of the night and like assaulting him in the middle of the night, which obviously is not true because he's in a, in a locked prison cell. So the reason I'm mentioning this is because I think there were signs that he was deteriorating. But to answer your question, he was in segregation and similar to Pamela, he had like a, uh, a plastic knife. So he used the edge of that to take out one eyeball and then the plastic knife snapped. So oh. he, had to, he had to... uh use his fingers to take out the other one and scoop it out yeah gruesome <laughs> yeah and all the mean meanwhile while this was happening um one of the prison officers saw it called like their colleagues but they didn't want to go into the cell because at the beginning he was armed and because he was obviously really really 
really agitated so they called up for the people with backup with all the you know the the riot gear but by the time they came like the whole thing only lasted like three or four minutes that's how long it took him but by the time they came he'd already sort of done the deed mm. they teach you how to do it in karate bird beak strike it's called Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Just <cut off>. Seriously, <laughs> bird beak strike. I don't know where I find him. But I think, I think your, your eyes are quite soft. I don't think it, it takes that but much. It was an optic it. nerve. It just dangles out on an optic nerve. Yeah. yeah. It must take a hell of a lot to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to be pretty unwell, I think. Yeah. But so I, when I assessed him, this was like two years after the event and he was... In a, in a care, he was in a care home because he was blind and he was wearing oh. shades the entire time. Um, but he was, his solicitors were arguing that the mental health team didn't protect his safety because they didn't do a proper assessment, number one, and that the prison officers didn't come in to, to stop him um, quick enough, number two. And I actually have to say that even even though the outcome was pretty horrendous, I don't think it could have been predicted because his self-harm before was it escalated so quickly there was no signs that he was going to do what he did and even though he expressed some paranoia he didn't tell anybody about his specific delusion that they're trying to eat my eyeballs if he said that it would have been a different Could have been scenario prevented. Yeah. yeah see in america if you call someone that you say they got those charges you have to produce the paperwork on that person to prove it and then if you can't prove it you get it mm. So that would have been avoided, but sometimes people's they just run wild and say things, and people believe it, and yeah. that's because I, I can't imagine the stress he must have been under yeah. to not have those charges, but to be, you know, the, the whole population think you do. Yeah, you, you're just a dead man walking. He just what really stood out for me about Rex, he just wasn't built for prison. Like mm. um, I know you spent you spent time in prisons. I've worked there. There's a certain way that people carried themselves and he was just like a, a timid kind of slightly older mm. placid sort of man and i think they just so he, saw him as easy they probably so. thought he fit the profile yeah. of someone who'd done that yeah yeah absolutely. i can yeah. see that happening because instead of being a hardened criminal he was like a bit of a no swagger awkward no swagger yeah 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 so how does mental illness lead to violence well <clears throat> so there's lots of different mechanisms there is the way that symptoms directly can cause aggression. So we've talked about some of those in, in the patients we've discussed today already. Um, so people can hear voices, for example, command hallucinations telling you to attack somebody. People can have paranoid delusions when they're psychotic, uh, where they believe that other people are out to hurt them. So they attack them preemptively. So that's the most direct kind of link, I would say. And then you get indirect links. So we mentioned before that most of my patients have some sort of horrific life experience or vicissitudes. So from poverty, homelessness, um, physical or sexual abuse, drug and alcohol use, all of those factors lead to criminality and separately they all lead to mental illnesses. So in the, in the cohort that I see, which is a bit of both then, so they have factors that lead to both of those things. So it's like an indirect cause. And then lastly, I would say that some people who are mentally ill get exploited. So it's, it's probably a small proportion of my patients, maybe five to 10%. But I've certainly assessed some people who have something like a learning disability or schizophrenia, uh, who are completely marginalized and isolated and criminal gangs prey on them. So I've assessed several cases where drug dealing gangs have befriended somebody who's just a little bit odd, socially awkward, got a mental illness, and they pretend that they're part of the gang. And you know they pretend to be pally with them, spend some time with them, but they actually just use them. They manipulate them to, do, to, to like sell drugs on their behalf. So they take all the risk. But the criminal gang take all the all the benefits, the money. Of yeah. course. Sorry. 
I'm feeling greedy. How how do you handle violence in secure units? So in in secure units, the first thing I say is that is that violence isn't common. It, it, it isn't very common. So it's not like every single day there's a violent incident, but certainly every couple of weeks in in the secure units that I've worked in. As you know, I worked in Broadmoor for a short period of time, but most of my work has been in medium secure units. And the way that we handle it, first of all, we have to f form a trusting relationship with the patients themselves. So if they are willing to open up to us about their backgrounds and, and different aspects of their life, they're less likely to be angry towards us. Secondly, we have to kind of know their trigger points. So you have to know the patients intimately. If somebody's really quiet and shy, if their behavior changes, so if they suddenly seem agitated, then that's a trigger warning. Or the opposite, if they're usually quite friendly and gregarious and out in the ward and they're becoming isolated. So you've got to be almost psychic to kind of recognize the, the warning signs before anything escalates. And then when you actually do have violence on the wards, all the nurses and all the staff carry around these alarms. So you, you have to scan your thumbprint to get one in the gate and you're not allowed into the unit unless, and, um, unless you've got an alarm on you. So if you pull the alarm, then it alerts all the other nurses in the hospital to where an incident's happening. So they run over and try and intervene. Um, but also we've got seclusion rooms. So that's kind of the equivalent of the antiquated idea of a padded cell. It's not actually padded, but it's like a, um, a, a room where there's almost nothing in there. There's just a mattress sometimes like a, a blanket but it's like an anti-rip blanket so you can't make ligatures and you house people in seclusions for the shortest amount of time possible so it's not supposed to be a punishment it's supposed to be when they're so unsafe to be on the ward that you nurse them temporarily usually about a, a day maybe three or four days maximum generally when they're kept like in an isolated room and the doctors and nurses come in every few hours give them medication give them food obviously uh, so yeah so you kind of separate them from the ward um, for the minimum amount of time possible to try and calm them down, then you have to release them back onto the ward. Yeah. In America, you get tased, cuffed here, cuffed there, cuffed everywhere, leg cuffs, and then you get four-pointed or five-pointed, which means you're on a slab of uh, a bunk, and if they're just going to four-point you, they just chain you down naked, one, two, three, four. But if they five point you, they're going to chain chain your head down and maybe even put a spit hood on you as well. But how is that helping and the situation? And leave you there for days and you're just pissing mm. and shitting while you lay. Jeez. Yeah, how is that <laughs> helping the, the situation? That's the American, that's the American, that's the Sheriff Joe Arpaio approach. Wow. <laughs> no, that is an extreme cruelty. I, I, I spoke to people in four-pointed and five-pointed, that's how I know Did them. you ever yeah. see it happening? No, because you they take them away once they act up and then yeah. it happens to them in like, they put them in max security. Yeah. Yeah. And the prisoners must obviously put up a fight to try and resist that happening to them. Well, yeah, they've probably done something violent and then the guards just come in and taser them and crush them down and take them away. Yeah. 4.5 point them. I think the, the British approach is very different to the American yeah. approach. I'm not saying there's no brutality. I think there is. And we talked about the case of Rocky Bennett, who was killed mm. uh, during a, a restraint. So I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I think the ethos is to try and be humane, try and rehabilitate, try and treat. Whereas in America, it just sounds brutal, doesn't it? One of my mates who got four point or five point eight. He managed to sneak a razor blade in his mouth, oh. though, and um, use that to do something. <laughs> I can't remember. It's crazy situations, but yeah. Go on, next question. <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking about the psychopath test earlier. Yeah, myself and Sean have done it. I think you, John Abbott, did it. Yep, yeah, and who else is it? Alex Reed. So sociopaths versus. Uh, psychopaths. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I did a video for this on my channel recently as well. So I think the two terms are kind of used uh, interchangeably, but they're actually different. 
The first thing I'd say is that psychopath is a clinical term. So it's actually a, a, a forensic psychiatry diagnosis. So we have, as you mentioned before, the psychopath test. You can measure whether somebody's a psychopath or not. And the reason we do that is because if somebody's a psychopath, their risk of reoffending is is um, ex exponentially higher than the average criminal, even with somebody with another mental illness like schizophrenia, for example. So it helps us risk assess and how dangerous and what resources we need for the future. Whereas a sociopath is not really a for, it's, it's not a medical phrase. So there's no diagnosis of sociopathy is what some people say. So if you ask different people what a sociopath means, you might get different answers because it's not that well-defined. Having said all that, the differences are that psychopaths are a lot more cold and calculated. So both of them lack empathy. Both of them can commit sudden, severe, impulsive um, violence and they can be quite aggressive. They don't care about the rights of other people. That's what they've got in common. The difference is, is that a psychopath is a lot more likely to be calculated about it. So a psychopath won't lose their temper at you right now. They might sort of laugh along with you um, and gain your confidence, and then they'll do something really dangerous or really sneaky afterwards. Whereas a sociopath so tends to react immediately to the situation. Mm. Right. <clears throat> and psychopaths tend to be a lot more sneaky and manipulative. So a psychopath will can befriend you. So say in the corporate world, a psychopath is more likely to to stab like a colleague in the back to get a promotion, whereas a sociopath is more likely to argue with that person. So wh where would you? place somebody like say Raoul Moat the man who shot the police officers because he was angry with the police but he was also you know a, a doorman on nightclubs you know he's he's a, the brutish yeah so I think he would probably he was a bodybuilder yeah. steroid addict there was a lot to that though wasn't yes. there? because hadn't he suffered some kinds of abuses though at the hands of the police to do with his, he, uh... he blamed the police for his problems um, okay yes um so I think he's probably more antisocial personality disorder. So that's like the younger brother yes. of psychopathy. So it is all of those things I mentioned before, like being aggressive, not caring about the law, not care, not having empathy, not not knowing the difference between right and wrong, but not necessarily the charm that a psychopath has. Because psychopaths are usually really quite manipulative. Mm. Whereas from what I know about Raoul Moat, he wasn't manipulative as such. He was just an angry he was just an angry, dangerous person who Gaza had to go and try and get him out of the, the drain. And he said he was going to take him fishing, but he said, I'm not going to stop. Um, and weirdly, I was, in, I, was in, I was in the vicinity and he drove past me in his car. With, uh, I was with a police, I was with a police <laughs> officer. It was a very weird weekend. Um, <laughs> Sounds like a lot of your weekends are quite unusual. <laughs> and this, this police officer knew who he was. And if, if, if he'd known it was, goodness knows what could have happened. But Are most, no, are most serial killers psychopaths? Um, no, I don't think most are. I think some of the high profile ones are. Ted Bundy is one that jumps out mm. to me as definitely being um, a psychopath. So, so most serial killers will, will lack empathy, will have the things I was talking about, about having an antisocial personality element but most of them aren't really that manipulative so it's the ones that lure the victims in and that charm people like ted bundy did and not just the victims but also the authorities so ted bundy was giving out interviews and was mm, you know he was, having he a was involved in political officers. parties he 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 did things that you know you'd consider normal he was he didn't he didn't just appear as some sort of deranged angry person yeah. you and that's the difference between someone like him and Raoul Moso. Yeah, so you've, you've hit the nail on the head then. The psychopath, it's hard to tell that they're abnormal because they come across as so kind of calm and 
superficially they seem very normal and typical in their interactions so i think all psych all serial killers will have antisocial tendencies absolutely but only a small proportion of them will actually be true psychopaths because mm. everyone has psychopath tendencies don't they so what takes it to the point where they kill uh that is that depends on lots of different factors so it could be that they have some sort of really bad trauma themselves in their upbringing so it could be they've been they've either witnessed lots of violence or they've been a victim of violence themselves or it could be that they um, just have a low sort of threshold or tolerance for anger so it could be because they've been humiliated either as a one-off event or more often frequently when they were uh, young mm. when they were young so they've just got a very distorted kind of moral compass so robert, all of those things well robert durst kind of fits that profile in that he he um he witnessed his mother fall off a roof or did he push the mother um and that that's what or he blames where he he went wrong but do you'd say he would you say he was a psychopath uh i don't know that much about his ability to charm or manipulate i don't think he was that charming as far as i know he certainly wasn't charming <laughs> so, uh, i think he's more social i think people misuse the term psychopath they yes. assume it's anything to do with violence yes. it was actually a true psychopath all about manipulation and charm probably more than violence actually so mm. what about dennis nielsen yeah psychopath dennis nielsen um was he char i suppose he was charming to a degree actually well, he charmed he? the men back didn't yeah. he yeah, that's true. But then, and the he, only reason he killed them was because he didn't want them to leave. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he, that's why he kept their bodies because he, he, he wanted them to be with him. Mm. I mean, he did, he did, he did get men back to his flat, but that not, not, not that's not necessarily charm. That could just be the promise of sex. It sounds charming when he's narrating his documentary yes, on yeah. his tapes. Really chipper. Okay. Chipper, isn't he? Mm. We met the uh, the interesting couple who have uh, all the tapes. They were they, yeah. they were given everything by him. Can we get hold of them? I've got we, we we have got their email address. Yes, we're gonna arrange a lunch, aren't we? Or yes, I yeah. don't. I've not heard the tapes. So I don't know enough about him. But well, the documentary is based on his tapes. It's him narrating it. Okay, it's just a fraction of the tapes. Um, yeah. Charles Bronson would be somebody that jumps out to me. That's Bond or psychotic. Mm. So he's very charming. Like if you see him in interviews, he's you know he's flirts flirting with whoever's interviewing him. He's comes across as a, mm. as a sort of likable guy. So that's a typical Bond or psychopath. So, mm. so, so say something's traumatic happened to someone then as a young person. Is that just waiting to express itself at some later date? It's like you've got people who've completely normalized, it seems, then they murder someone. Is it always in there waiting to come out? It's always in there waiting to come out. I think the, prob the, the problem with answering that question is that people who actually, the number of murderers, the number of people that commit murders is very low. And within those people, there's so many different kind of presentations and backgrounds. So to give you a specific example, some people will take pleasure in the act of killing they will think about it they'll fantasize about it sometimes there's sort of sexual connotations attached to that and they will take a perverse pleasure so they plan it uh, whereas more people will kill somebody reactively so they feel like they've been slighted or they're in a, a relationship that's that's kind of been marked with domestic violence that's escalated over time so i i can't answer your question because it's so different for so many different people and a lot of people suffer trauma but only a very small proportion of them will go on to commit a serious crime and even within them an even smaller proportion will go on to kill somebody and i think the way that people react to trauma it depends on so many factors it depends on your natural resilience and your personality it depends on being reminded and triggered by those traumas so if it's something that you're if it's if you're faced with a reminder or a similar reminder every single day then that's likely to build up over time and, and you're going to process it 
a lot less effectively than if it was one random thing that happened that you've completely forgotten about. And it also depends on your environment and your and the factors, social factors now in your life. So if you're relatively stable, happy, you know, in a relationship, have a decent lifestyle, decent job, then you're less likely to have this pent up frustration and anger versus if you're marginalized, jobless, you know, homeless, poor. So there's just so many different factors that it's it's really hard to predict how one person ends up becoming a killer. Do you think the capacity to kill is in everyone then because it's a survival mechanism, for example, say a, a, a woman is at home, um, she's her baby's there, someone breaks in, goes for the baby, she snatches the bread knife, whoosh, he's, he's a goner. Do you think everyone's just got that in them, whether they've been traumatized or not? I think, I think everybody potentially has got that in them, yeah. But whether it comes out or not is a very different question. And in the scenario you're describing, things move so fast that people don't have, they don't have the luxury of deciding what they're going to do. It's all on instinct. And that's more about um, fight and flight, fright, flight or flight, I think, than about a murderous rage. Some people will freeze. Some people will just react immediately in an aggressive manner. So who in this room do you think is most yeah. likely to kill? Gosh, I don't know enough about these two. John. <laughs> <laughs> or is the biggest psychopath? Uh, I don't think any of us are psychopaths. <laughs> <laughs> I think Matthew's definitely got the most criminal collections. <laughs> we don't he talk about those. <laughs> you've got the stalker, you've got the criminal connections, and you've got the, the jail well, experience. So. Well, I think between between us, we, we certainly met some somebody who was potentially a, a serial killer <laughs> at that crime conference. He's probably going to watch I this. Every, so we might want to keep mum. We've just been invited back to crime yes. conference. <laughs> everybody who I, I met uh, right afterwards, friends of mine, and they, they all said, you know, you, you do realise you, you probably were in a room with such a person. Are you talking about one person specifically? Well, well, if, you, if you are, I think, I think, I I think there was. There was, was there one. Change the subject. <laughs> um, Thank you to everyone. This has been such yeah, an interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Thank viewers, you. let us know what what do you think of this eclectic mix of people and the chemistry and the ensuing conversation that has resulted today. And um, would you like to say anything in conclusion, Doctor Das, to the viewers, and how how can they can find you, etc.? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to quickly shout out my channel again, if that's all right. So it's called A Psych for Sore Minds. So I do everything that is related to mental health and offending and the crossover between the two. So I analyze some high profile cases, talk about my ex-patients, talk about criminality in general, talk about um, individual diagnosis, stuff like that. So go check it out. And I just want to say thank you again for having me on. It's always a pleasure to uh, share some of my thoughts with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And what can people find at the Steeple's Times, Matthew? Uh, well, at the moment, well, we, we're covering a major case which we obviously can't talk about on here <laughs> primarily, but uh, yeah, we, we do a lot about politics as well. So all this, the sleaze that's going on at the moment. And, uh, you know, we have, have a bit of fun with other things like horse racing as well. So it's a total mixture, really. And do, does Boomer and Jen have a new fashion line coming out? We do. In dressing gowns, perhaps? No. <laughs> Not quite yet. No, we're doing some collabs with some of the guests. So oh. I have one going with... Wild Man T-shirts. Sean Atwood, fantastic. Who else was there? Uh, Tug of War range, and Daniel Vella. Sweet. Is it Daniel Vella? Yeah. 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 Daniel Vella. Sweet. Yeah. I think that's it. Okay. Have you got a message to your uh, stalker, Jen? Stalker. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to put the clip. We need to put the clip of you Excellent. here, where you've got the. Uh, 
Kaz's castration device. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. Um, stamp that, James. Talker, just stop. Go away. I think is the yeah. best thing to Go say away. to the. That is You're the only thing you can ever say to these people. <laughs> you really don't want Chet Sandu on your ass. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. So please let us know what you have thought about today's podcast. And as ever, it is imp very important that you support all of our guests and co-hosts, platforms, all the links are down there. And we look forward to and your questions and comments. If you've got any questions for any of the guests, please put them in the comments below. Take care out there. Thank you for watching. Cheers.